Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. P.T. Barnum, the man who many have called the greatest showman on earth. And he was one hell of a showman, undoubtedly. When it came to making a lot of money entertaining the masses, no one, at least not during his lifetime, seems to have done it any better. But not everyone is a fan. The morality of his business decisions has certainly been called into question by many. Uh, some certainly despised him during his lifetime, and some despise him now. Exploring a polarizing figure today. He was for sure a bit of a scammer, definitely an exploiter, more than a wee bit cringy in ways. He frequently lied about the nature of the attractions he promoted, both at his museum in New York City and in his circus that traveled the world, and many of his attractions were his so-called freaks. There was Myrtle Corbin, the four-legged woman, Jojo, the dog-faced boy, Tom Thumb, a man no more than three feet, four inches tall, and while he was a child working for Barnum, little more than two feet tall. Was Barnum a monster to parade these people around for money? Many would say yes. Many others would say you need to look deeper into what I just glossed over. He gave a lot of people the ability to financially provide for themselves and in some cases grow wealthy during a time when they had few, if any, other options. He presented people lucrative business opportunities that no one else in the world of the 19th century was ever going to hand them. So was he really so monstrous? His character was complex. He did take advantage of others to make his fortune. He also did pay many of his performers far more than you would think an exploiter would. He entertained millions over the course of his life brought his performers, many of whom seemed to relish being celebrities, into the White House, brought them into the homes and palaces of other leaders and royalty around the world. He also used a lot of shady and blatantly unethical tactics to take down competitors. He maligned them in the press. He purposefully damaged or destroyed their businesses to further his own endeavors. He also dished out a lot of sage and righteous advice. He also didn't often practice what he preached. Such a complicated individual. Best known today for his circus, Barnum's life encompassed so much more than being a three-ring promoter. He was a groundbreaking entrepreneur, an advertising guru. He was a politician. He was a slave owner and then later a staunch abolitionist. He was a fierce supporter of the First Amendment, a defender of freedom, also a master hoaxer, a humbugger who saw no shame in attempting to perfect the art of humbuggery. 
He was a devoted husband for over 40 years, also a man who married a woman 40 years his junior just a few months after his first wife was buried. Most of all, he was a master at keeping his audience interested and willing to come back and buy another ticket. And we are still interested. I'm talking about him. You're listening. I hope you're looking forward to coming back in time with me to the 19th century today on this showbiz. That's how they do it at the circus. Prank-filled, morally ambiguous edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, circus lover. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Sit down and fire up that sweet calliope. I'm Dan Cummins, clown hunter, trapeze artist, maybe. Sword swallower instructor, maybe. You get it. And you are listening to Time Suck. Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, Triple M, you have all been hailed. Uh, Symphony of Insanity stand-up tour is sneaking up on me. Looks like it is really going to happen. I'm going to say it is going to happen. I'll be doing shows two weekends a month starting in August. Going to be back, baby! Uh, Cleveland, San Antonio, Spokane, Dallas, Houston, Portland, Philadelphia, Columbus, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Denver, Tacoma, and more. Most dates up at dancummins.tv for the rest of the year in the first few months of 2022. More dates being added soon. More announcements coming on social media, at Dan Cummins Comedy, on Instagram and Facebook. Some cities already sold out. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Nimrod is my daddy T in the badmagicmerch.com store because Sunday is Father's Day. You know what I'm giving my dad this uh, Sunday? Justice. I'll be calling the FBI all day long until he's finally behind bars. Enough's enough, Dad. You're getting the gift of consequences this year. I suggest all of you turn in your dads to the proper authorities this Father's Day as well. The best gift you can give the world this Father's Day are less dad-related crimes. Enough about probable serial killers. Let's talk about donations before I lose all of the brand new listeners with confusing inside jokes. For the June Bad Magic Productions charity donation, trying something different. Instead of doing one big donation, we are spreading around the donation portion of the Bad Magic monthly subscription money to two charities. Every year, we try to choose various charities in various categories. No year would be complete without a donation to an animal cause. Praiseable Jangles. We are pet lovers. Uh, we're donating a total of $14,100. So thank you. Uh, half is going to Trinity Stables in Georgia. They run a specialty program called Stable Moments, a weekly mentorship program that utilizes equine-assisted learning to achieve life skills and better prepare foster and adopted kids for healthy transitions into adulthood. For more info, go to trinitystables.net. Uh, our second charity is your mom. Mm-hmm, you heard me. Your mom needs money, you dirtbag. We're tired of her living in rags and filth and fluffing carnies for Kit Kats behind Jack in the Box. Wait, that's not right. Sorry, I blacked out for a second. Uh, our second charity is Vintage Pet Rescue, a Rhode Island-based nonprofit committed to rescuing vintage, a.k.a. senior pets from shelters and assisting their owners who can no longer care for their vintage pets. I love that term. I know the head of this charity personally. Uh, holy shit, does Kristen care about these animals? Uh, her and her husband, Mark, and the team at Vintage Pet Rescue give these animals love, attention, medical care for the last month, sometimes last few years of their lives. For more info, visit VintagePetRescue.org. And, uh, and now, for real, let's, uh, let's fire up that calliope. Huh? Let's <laughs> enter this weird circus shit show. Two quotes either said or attributed to P.T. Barnum provide good insight into the uh, duality of his character. The first is actually a misattributed quote. There's no evidence that P.T. Barnum ever said there is a sucker born every minute, but it sure sounds like some shit he would say. Dude made a fortune misleading people. 
And then there's the other less famous quote that he definitely did say. Stick it in your ass and chew on it for a while, Twinkle Britches. They spin it around, whistle Dixie, tell your pappy comes home, you two-bit booger whistle. That's how you put the peach in the cobbler. Fry sauce, ice cucumbers. Wing twice if you can hear me smiling. It's reported that quote was uttered directly after Barnum suffered a massive and debilitating stroke. Still, it offers a lot of insight into how his mind worked. Uh, JK, gosh dang! Come on, that's crazy talk. No, the second less famous quote is, the noblest art is that of making others happy. And for living in articles and short documentaries dedicated to his life the past few days, I think it's safe to say he thought that there was a sucker born every minute, and he also truly loved entertaining the shit out of those suckers. He certainly made a lot of suckers happy. He dazzled crowds with his amazing displays at the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He delighted the masses with displays of human curiosities like a mermaid skeleton and a little person Tom Thumb. Obviously, human curiosity shows do not hold up real well today. I know that. I won't try and justify their morality. However, important to know that they were commonplace at the time. Barnum did not invent them, not by a long shot. He was one of many promoters who offered so-called freak shows to people very eager to buy tickets to those shows. The general public was not outraged by those shows like many would be today. Uh, The two quotes I laid out a moment ago really do uh, present the essential two viewpoints of P.T. Barnum pretty well. Uh, The first, that he was essentially a fraud who made a lot of money by tricking honest people. And the second, that he was a showman who dazzled those honest people. Those people got what they paid for. Uh, Before we get into today's timeline, which will take up the majority of the episode, we're going to first look at some of the master marketers' philosophies on marketing, money, and life in general. All the ways he'd make money as a showman were generally acceptable at the time, like faking a mermaid skeleton from a uh, monkey skeleton and some fish bones. Uh, today, they'd be considered primitive, if not deceptive. P.T. Barnum considered this deception its own kind of art. It was called the humbug, and he was really good at it, maybe the best. Before we go any farther, what is, from a technical standpoint, standpoint a humbug? A humbug is a person or object that behaves in a deceptive or dishonest way, often as a hoax or as a kind of practical joke term was first recorded in 1751, some British student slang. And looking a little further into it, uh, I finally now understand what Ebenezer Scrooge meant when he said, bah humbug, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I always thought he meant something to the effect of, uh, you know, Christmas is rubbish, or, you know, I I don't like Christmas. Get out of here with your Christmas nonsense. I I was in the ballpark. Uh, Dickens used it to suggest fraud, since Scrooge considered the celebration of Christmas and all the festivities associated with it to be a total sham, a fraud, So when he was saying, bah, humbug, he was saying, Christmas is bullshit. This is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, For Barnum, humbugging would become a big cash cow. It was part of his marketing schemes. Uh, Holy shit, was he good at marketing. Uh, He was a master of press agentry, an early shady form of publicity, uh, is still sometimes used today. Press agentry agentry is the practice of attracting the attention of the press through techniques that manufacture fake news. Methods associated with press agentry uh, include staged events, publicity stunts, Low rallies or gatherings, spinning hype. The goal of press agentry is to attract attention rather than gain understanding. Barnum would do shit like write letters to newspapers, both praising and heavily criticizing his shows under various fake names. He would write letters pretending to be some uptight moralist, you know, who was outraged and disgusted by the lewd and crude nature of this show. He'd beg people not to go for the sake of the children. He'd beg the police to have Barnum thrown in jail for such obscenity. And of course, you know, these fake protests would stir up a lot of buzz, pique a lot of interest and sell a lot of tickets. Doing press agentry like this, he was able to get newspapers to advertise the shit out of his shows for free. This was a novel idea when he did it. And I got to say, pretty fucking genius. Uh, He was a shameless self-promoter. And he reminds me of the Kardashians in this sense. Random reference slash comparison, maybe I know. Uh, But working in LA, 
years ago, I, I was shocked to learn, maybe I was just naive, that a lot of up, up and coming celebrities or celebrities whose fame meters uh, had dipped and they wanted to you know, bounce them back up or people who were already famous and just wanted to be more famous, they would and they still do pay the paparazzi to supposedly you know, harass them outside uh, maybe some store where the paparazzi just happens to catch them you know, making out with, oh my, oh my goodness, another celebrity. Uh, and they're both cheating on their partners. Uh, out, outrage, drama. And it's all fake. Uh, you know, it's all a humbug designed to get people talking about them, to keep them relevant, to, you know, kick up their fame meters. The celebrities will tell the paparazzi where they're going to be, or they'll have, you know, somebody on, on behalf of them tell the paparazzi where they're going to be, what they're going to be doing, uh, sometimes pay them to show up. And then the paparazzi will sell the pics to some tabloids, tabloids, you know, they're fed a fake scandal, all manufactured to get people talking about the celebrity to raise their profile, you know, in the hopes of pumping some adrenaline into their uh, career. Supposedly, the Kardashians are unparalleled fucking masters at this. Allegedly, that is their greatest gift. Uh, so much planned, heavily contrived drama done to keep us all watching, you know? Like all those leaked nude pics and sex tapes that will come out. Allegedly, they are almost always leaked by the celebrities themselves who then go on the talk show circuit, you know, feign embarrassment. Oh my God, I can't believe these things got out. And it was 100% contrived. Uh, this, this type of, you know, press agentry worked out pretty well money-wise for the now preposterously wealthy Kardashian family. And it worked out well for Barnum. Uh, Barnum used more traditional forms of marketing as well. He'd often just, you know, put a level of uh, effort into marketing that some would find maybe maybe tacky, maybe a, maybe a bit much, uh, a bit extra. Uh, to promote his American Museum at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street in Manhattan, he would drape the entire building in outsized banners, at, you know, announcing new attractions. He'd send horse-drawn wagons to New York with posters and signs promoting his museum like a lot of them. He had a staff of illustrators who would just crank out posters and pamphlets constantly. If you didn't make it to one of his shows, it certainly wasn't because you hadn't heard about it. Uh, Barnum knew how to spend money where it counted, and he knew advertising was where it counted. And the copy he wrote for his ads, that's where uh, humbuggery came in, and he had people help him write the copy as well. Uh, Barnum's skill at writing ad copy, him and his team's skill, and manipulating the press would start with his very first attraction, Joyce Heth, an elderly enslaved woman that he uh, bought and then took on the road. Heth has become exhibit A for the fuck that guy camp of Barnum haters. And I get it. Even by the standards of the time, Barnum's use of Heth was shameful, uh, a point made by at least one unbought-off editor. The Boston Atlas declared, a more indecent mode of raising money than by the exhibition of an old woman, black or white, we can hardly imagine. By the mid-1850s, at least on paper, Barnum would become an abolitionist uh, in, a, in a letter dated 1855. He wrote, he wrote that he had grown to abhor the curse from witnessing its fruits. Also around 1855, Barnum switched his allegiance from the Democratic to the Republican Party. Uh, during the Civil War, he ardently supported the Union. As the war was drawing to a close, Barnum decided to run uh, for the Connecticut State Legislature and won. And once in office, he fought to extend voting rights to black citizens. Uh, you know, he did later regret his early actions with Heth, but still he did what he did with Heth. Again, he was complicated. Obviously, he lived during a very different time as well. Uh, regarding Heth, we'll get into more of her story in the timeline right now, the tactics he used to promote her are a good example of his humbuggery. After finding Heth, who was enslaved by a man named John S. Bowling in a small-time exhibit in Kentucky run by R.W. Lindsay, Barnum saw for himself that the elderly blind woman who had sunken eyes and deep wrinkles indeed looked very, very old. And he learned about her alleged backstory. Whether she came up with this or Lindsay concocted this backstory is up for debate. She was said to have papers that proved that she was once the nursemaid to none other than George Washington. And if true, that would have made her around 161 years old. 
over 40 years older than Japanese man Jiroman Kimura, the oldest verified human who ever lived from 18, you know, he lived from 1897 to 2013, 116 years, 54 days old. Uh, make her older than Jean Calment or Jeannie, Jean, there we go, Calment, a French woman who lived from 1875 to 1997, supposedly making it to 122 years and 164 days, uh, but she may have been a fraud. Uh, holy shit, being alive at, at any of those ages based on current human quality of life standards for people over the age of 90, it sounds fucking terrible. I looked up, I looked up some pictures and Jeannie, German, they both looked really fucking rough the last few years of their lives. Right? I'm guessing both of them, regardless of how old they really were, I guess you know, we, have, we have proof that Kimura was the, old, the age he claimed to be, not so much with Calment, but I'm guessing they were ready to go by the end. Uh, come on, robotics and nanotechnology. Repair that DNA, tiny computers. Build me some synthetic organs, transhumanists. I want to be old and buff as fuck. Uh, Hail Nimrod. Anyway, Barnum saw that whether true or not, a lot of people seem to wholeheartedly believe that Heth was the oldest living human by far. Uh, he talked Bowling into leasing her as an exhibit immediately while John Bowling remained her legal owner. Heth allegedly played along with the ruse if she didn't invent it, telling stories about her dear little George and singing a hymn that she supposedly sang to the nation's first president when he was a baby. And Heth allegedly got paid for her role in the show. Barnum would write later, she too took great delight in the humbug, which was profitable to her. While we don't know how much Barnum did pay her, we do know he paid his later acts in general very, very well. Some of them able to retire and retire young in luxury. I'll cover some of that in the timeline. Uh, it seems best case, he took someone who was already enslaved, kept them enslaved, had them continue to work as entertainment, uh, you know, as an entertainment attraction and paid them. Worst case, he bought an old woman and forced her to work herself to death. Uh, not sure we will ever know the whole truth of this matter, unfortunately. Uh, when marketing Heth, Barnum took a stealthy and counterintuitive approach. When they would arrive in a new city, Barnum would send a scathing anonymous letter to the editor of the paper, questioning the authenticity of the world's oldest woman. This in turn would generate controversy with people writing in to give their opinions, whether they thought she was that old, whether she wasn't. Opinions, you know, uh, that they got after buying tickets to the exhibition and seeing Heth for themselves. Whenever Barnum did this, he saw ticket sales ramp up exponentially. Barnum ended up purchasing Heth for $1,000, over $30,000 today, and he went on to make over $1,500 or $45,000 today every week until she died a year later. And again, I, I wish I knew how much of that money she was given. Uh, why did Barnum attempt his counterintuitive marketing in the first place? He knew that once he got a person to feel something strongly, whether it was excitement, curiosity, anger, or spite, they would probably pay 25 cents to see what all the fuss was about. He also knew that in the end, more times than not, people would feel that they got their money's worth. Even if they knew they'd been humbugged and the exhibition was a fake, they would still end up entertained and that was really what they were paying for. Barnum did not feel guilty for this kind of manipulation. He saw himself as a simple businessman. One quote of his went like this. And in what business is there not humbug? There's cheating in all trades but ours, is the prompt reply from the bootmaker with his brown paper soles. And the grocer with his flowery sugar and chicory coffee. The butcher with his mysterious sausages and queer veal. This quote makes me think about all the sugar and salt in various processed foods, right? All the shit that everyone knows is not healthy, but it keeps you coming back to buy more. It makes me think of commercials with professional athletes endorsing like Coca-Cola or beer commercials featuring skinny models and bikinis. Get the fuck out of here. Drinking beer has nothing to do with looking good in a bikini. Drinking soda has nothing to do with athletic performance. That implied association is uh, some humbuggery. In 2009, Taco Bell replaced 20-year sponsor McDonald's as the fast food partner for the NBA. And again, get the fuck out of here. Taco Bell and McDonald's, not the places you want to base your uh, nutritional needs in if you want to be a world-class athlete. Not the best fuel for the most elite human engines. Barnum saw humbuggery all around him. He said, 
all and every one protest his each, all and every one protest each his own innocence and warn you against the deceits of the rest. My inexperienced friend, take it for granted that they all tell the truth about each other and then transact your business to the best of your ability on your own judgment. Uh, before we get into the timeline, let's look at a few more Barnum quotes. Even if he was a dirtbag, he was a dirtbag who gave out some great advice. He wrote a book on how to succeed in business, The Art of Money Getting, Golden Rules for Making Money. Published in 1880, when he was 70 years old, after a long lifetime of economic success, there are some great knowledge nuggets in this book, like this one. Whatever you do, do with all your might. Work at it, if necessary, early and late, in season and out of season, not leaving a stone unturned and never deferring for a single hour that which can be done just as well now. The old proverb is full of truth and meaning whatever is worth doing at all is worth doing well. Holy fuck, I love that sentiment. Literally could not agree more. Expanding on this a bit more, if you want to have the best chance at financial success, first figure out what you're good at, then figure out how to monetize what you're good at, and then like Barnum says, work your motherfucking ass off. Be willing to work twice as hard as anyone else. I'm amazed at how many people I've known who I've worked with who are talented and they verbally express wanting to do this or that, but they don't actually want to really work for it. In my experience, they're not, they're not willing to work, you know, like on the weekends, they're not willing to burn some midnight oil. They're not willing to sacrifice sleep, time at the gym, having a barbecue, whatever, to really try and make their dreams come true. And if you don't really, you know, want what you have to, uh, you know, work all those extra hours to get, then yeah, why beat yourself up? Don't do it. Hit the beach, you know, uh, get out of the office, like truly, seriously, enjoy the day. But if you really want to get ahead in some way, odds are, you know, that that extra ahead, it's going to take extra work. I literally don't personally know anyone I consider, you know, very uh, career, you know, career successful. I'm blanking off that the phrasing is terrible. Uh, you know, I don't know anyone who's very successful in their career who doesn't put a lot of extra hours in. Like literally the most common statement I've heard from uh, business owners over the course of my adult life is I can't find anyone who's willing to work. And looking around at my coworkers, you know, when I was 20, I, I agreed with that sentiment. And over 20 years later, I, I still see it. You know, a lot of people talk a big game, but they don't follow through with the hours because, you know, that's, that's, it's tough. It's, it's not, not, not fun to make a lot of sacrifices. Uh, you might not get rich with a strong work ethic like Barnum did, but outside of extreme events and unforeseen and unavoidable economic calamities, you'll also rarely starve. Uh, you know, enjoy the day, carpe diem and all that, but also make hay while the sun shines, you beautiful bastards. Hail Nimrod. I love this stuff. Uh, Barnum continues... Uh, many a man acquires a fortune by doing his business thoroughly while his neighbor remains poor for life because he only half does it. Ambition, energy, industry, perseverance are indispensable requisites for success in business. Fortune always favors the brave and never helps a man who does not help himself. Yes, I have a rock hard work boner right now. Preach Barnum, preach. And before I get emails, yes, I know extenuating circumstances don't make this possible for everyone, truly. But at the very least, working thoroughly rather than half-assing it guarantees you'll have a lot better chance of success. And I've seen this, I, I hate to default to the same example, I'm like a broken record, but I always think about something I saw. It's been like almost fucking 20 years now. now but I'll just never forget it, just a memory burned into my brain. And I've seen various other examples like this around just being, you know, out traveling around, living life, whatever. But I just, just listen to this guy at this independent coffee shop Bitch about how Starbucks was putting him out of business. Starbucks had moved in, you know, down the street. And as I'm listening to this, I, I'm, I'm assuming owner of this little mom and pop coffee shop, I'm waiting at the counter of his business trying to order one of his fucking coffees and he couldn't give a shit. And I was, I was like, no, dude, that's, that's why you're going out of business. Not Starbucks. Your, your own shitty work ethic. 
and you know is is what's happening here. Um, you know, I've known people with odds stacked against them, no family support, health problems, bad luck, et cetera, et cetera, and they still get shit done and make headway in life. They're just determined. They're tenacious motherfuckers, and that's what it takes. No matter what, I don't hear them making excuses or blaming others for the shortcomings. And then I've known other people with seemingly every advantage and just watch them piss it away. They always have excuses. Masters of the blame game. I talk to my kids, Kyler Monroe, about personal responsibility a lot, about how if their teacher or their boss thinks that they fucked up, well, then odds are there's a good chance they probably did fuck up. You know, if they get feedback about being lazy, well, then maybe they are lazy. Don't just automatically assume someone's out to get you, that your teacher or your boss is just, you know, just trying to be a dick. Uh, you always blame others. How are you ever going to improve? What incentive do you have to get better if shit is always someone else's fault? You guys have made me a better podcaster, absolutely for sure, because I listen to the, you know, the critical emails. I don't always put a lot of them in the updates because I don't want to have like this negative energy, but I'm so grateful I get them. I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. You know, sometimes somebody comes in and stings a little bit, but I'm like, no, you're right. I fucked up there. Uh, thank God my kids are not excuse makers. Makes me proud to hear their teachers consistently compliment those little fuckers' work ethics. Got to see Kyler, who's a, a big fucker now, get a few awards at a band concert just the other night. I got the band director's highest award for coming into school early to volunteer his time to provide uh, percussion for the choir. Uh, yes, he's a huge nerd, uh, but a hardworking nerd. I love him for it. Um, and Rose missing out family events now more and more because she's busy babysitting. And it doesn't make me sad. It makes me makes me very proud of her. Uh, Barnum saw the pursuit of money as a noble one. Fuck yeah. Can't pay your rent on dreams and good intentions. Uh, he didn't think it was a bad thing to want to get rich. Of this, he said, the history of money getting, which is commerce, is a history of civilization. And wherever trade has flourished most, there too have any art and science produced the noblest fruits. In fact, as a general thing, money getters are the benefactors of our race. To them, in a great measure, we are indebted for our institutions of learning and of art, our academies, colleges, and churches. I had no idea I'd get so much motivation out of this episode. I really didn't, especially since going into it. I couldn't stand this dude. Uh, Barnum's first tenant of becoming successful surprised me. So simple, health. He'd say, the foundation of success in life is good health. That is the substratum fortune. Uh, I probably should have looked up uh, substratum. Uh, that is the substratum fortune. It's also the basis of happiness. A person cannot accumulate a fortune very well when he is sick. So true. I feel terrible for people with chronic illnesses, right? So much harder to accomplish just about anything at all when you're in pain, when you're tired, when your mind is foggy, when you don't feel good, you're nauseous, et cetera. Those of you who have overcome illness to succeed in life, big hail to you. Hail to rising above. I hope you're insanely proud of yourself. You should be. If you're in good health, don't take that shit for granted. Cherish it, protect it. I struggle with that one. I get real lazy with my diet. I'm getting better, but I still often eat like shit. I know I won't research as well after a carb-heavy meal as I will after something lighter, more, more protein-centric and healthier. But sometimes I still choose shit because I don't even know why. Uh, I feel like I deserve it. Classic emotional eating. Same with working out. I know I'll feel better after a good workout, but I'll still often make an excuse not to. Just, oh, I don't have time. I'm too tired. But if I did the workout, then I'd have more energy. I'd accomplish more in a shorter amount of time. So I would have more time to work out. I'd have more energy, blah, blah, blah. I want to kick my own lazy ass right now. Uh, Barnum's advice for people just getting started with their lives is also worth hearing. The safest plan, he said, and the one most sure of success for the young man starting in life is to select the vocation which is most congenial to his tastes. Son of a bitch! I basically said the same thing earlier, not knowing he was going to say this. It's not like I thought of it, by the way, or that I thought I came up with it, by the way. I've heard other practical, successful people, more, su more successful than me, say the same shit. Pick what you're best at. To try and succeed, you'll have the best odds at success. So pragmatic. Barnum also cautioned about going into debt. Young men starting in life should, and he says man all the time because, you know, 18, 18, uh, 19th century, 1800s. Uh, young men starting in life should avoid running into debt. There is scarcely anything that drags a person down like debt. 
If he succeeds in pain and then gets trusted again, he is adopting a habit which will keep him in poverty through life. Debt robs a man of his self-respect and makes him almost despise himself. I learned that one from Papa Ward. Papa Ward did not like credit. Don't live above your means. And look, sometimes credit, I do think, you know, debt, unavoidable. Sometimes life fucks you and credit keeps the ship from totally sinking. I absolutely get that. But other times, oftentimes, people confuse wants with needs and they really fuck themselves. They buy a bunch of toys they really can't afford. They get themselves in a whole heap of trouble that was 100% avoidable. They buy on credit. They can't pay the credit off. Then the compound interest monster grows into a big, mean-ass monkey on their back that just keeps fucking them. Then they become a slave to their shit, right? The wants you buy should lift you up, not weigh you down. Uh, Barnum would also warn against making your whole life about money, maybe a weird position for someone who seemed to be so obsessed with money, but at least he preached a pretty balanced view. He'd say money is, in some respects, like fire. It's a very excellent servant but a terrible master. Love this too, right? Money should serve you, not vice versa. If you let it become your end-all, be-all, your master, it will own you. You'll chase it forever and it'll never be enough. Barnum extrapolated on this idea when he added, those who really desire to attain an independence have only to set their minds upon it and adopt the proper means as they do in regard to any other object which they wish to accomplish. And the thing is easily done. And lastly, since he was the king of hoaxes, it's interesting to hear his take on honesty and business. The public very properly shun all whose integrity is doubted. No matter how polite and pleasant and accommodating a man may be, none of us dare to deal with him if we suspect false weights and measures. Uh, okay. Interesting advice. For somebody who made a living off of lying. Uh, maybe it made sense though. You know, to hype up his shows, Barnum was the king of bullshit, but when it came to delivering, when it came to paying his vendors, his debts, his circus stars, his support crew, he didn't fuck around. I think that's what he meant by honesty. Uh, integrity is so important in business. Reminds me of a Warren Buffett quote. I love Warren Buffett quotes. Uh, This one is, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, bro. Guard that reputation. So those were a few of the highlights from the art of money getting or golden rules for making money. Central message of that book is that there aren't any shortcuts to wealth. Barnum says that the path to wealth is picking the right career path, having a good character and working your ass off. And you know, advertising well. That was one of uh, several books Barnum wrote. His autobiography would be revised and reprinted numerous times starting in 1855 when he was 45. Uh, We leaned on his autobiography for some of the info in this suck. It was called Life of P.T. Barnum. Other books he authored included Gotcha Dummy in 1865. Uh, You actually thought I found a real giant, you fucking idiot? Uh, Published in 1869. And holy fuck, I'm rich because you're stupid. Published in 1872. Or maybe that's not true. Uh, maybe other books, <laughs> other, other books, maybe other books he authored included The Humbugs of the World in 1865, Struggles and Triumphs in 1869, and he also uh, published books for children on wild animals and some thrilling adventures. He was busy. Okay, now that we have an idea of how his mind worked and how that mind would go on to change the world of showbiz, time to really get to know the man in this week's Time Suck timeline. Right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. 
This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my better help therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. 
y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening, and now, showbiz! Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On July 5th, 1810, Phineas Taylor Barnum is born in Bethel, Connecticut. And yes, his real name is Phineas. It's in the cartoon character, uh, Phineas of Phineas and Ferb. Can't confirm if Phineas, the cartoon character, was named after him. Uh, his father was an innkeeper, tailor, and shop owner named Philo Barnum. The fuck's going on in his family? Phineas and Philo. <laughs> Come on, those are weird names, right? I guess Phineas is Hebrew in origin, derived from a minor biblical character, Philo's Greek. I've never met a Phineas or a Philo in my life. Phineas's mother was Philo's second wife, Picky Pecky Ping Pong Taylor. Uh, JK, her name is Irene. I was just hoping her name would be an, uh, like an even more uncommon P name than Phineas or Philo. In total, the couple had 10 children from their marriage and their previous marriages. 19th century. So rough on uteruses and vaginas. Phineas was the third great-grandson of Thomas Barnum, born in 1625 in England. He'd bring his lineage to Connecticut before dying in 1695. He purchased land in Connecticut in uh, 1673, less than four decades after the colony of Connecticut was first established. He was the first Barnum in North America, an early American. Phineas's maternal grandfather, Phineas Taylor, born in 1760, was a character. Some funny stories about him coming up in the timeline. He was a politician, legislator, landowner, justice of the peace, and lottery schemer. Barnum had some creative moneymakers, some schemers in the family tree. More on early lotteries in a bit. I found that part fascinating. Uh, Phineas would have a big influence on his favorite grandson. The two had a special relationship. Phineas Taylor even gifted the boy the deed to his own quote-unquote island when he was born. Uh, we'll get to that soon, too. That's a fun story. Barnum would say in his autobiography about Pappy Phineas, I was his pet and spent probably the larger half of my waking hours in his arms during the first six years of my life. My good mother estimates that the amount of lump sugar which I swallowed from his hands during that period could not have been less than two barrels. <laughs> two barrels of sugar for baby boy. Sounds like a good grandpa. Uh, he got his taste for a good joke from his grandfather too. He said, my grandfather would go farther, wait longer, work harder, and contrive deeper to carry out a practical joke than for anything else under heaven. I love this dude's grandpa. Uh, he took one joke pretty fucking far that we're going to find out, uh, we're going to learn about in a bit. Barnum's paternal grandfather was Captain Ephraim or Ephraim Barnum of Bethel, a captain in the militia in the Revolutionary War. In his biography, Barnum wrote that Captain, uh, I think it's Ephraim. Ephraim was of a lively turn of mind and relished a joke better than the average of mankind. Right? Sounds like he had two good grandpas. Sounds like he had good sense of humor in the family. What an awesome way to start out in life, right? It's a blessing to have one solid grandparent. On PT's autobiography, he mostly skips over the first seven years of his life. Not much happened, he says, aside from his grandpa cramming him uh, with sugar, loading him up with pennies to buy candy and raisins, which Gramps instructed Phineas to buy at the lowest possible price the store would sell the candies for. Pappy Taylor was a shrewd bargainer and taught young Barnum to be the same. Barnum mentions that before he was five, he began to save pennies and sixpences. By the time he was six in 1816, his candy-loving grandpa told him that all the coins he'd collected amounted to one dollar. He was pumped. Grandpa Taylor told the boy to come with him and he would show him something worth having. Barnum put all his hard-earned cash into his pocket handkerchief and went with his grandfather to the village tavern. I love that that was a thing. People just had all the time back then, a pocket handkerchief. 
not a wallet, a pocket handkerchief. Uh, Grandpa said to the barkeep, he, here is the richest boy in this part of the country. He has a dollar in cash. I wish you to take his change and give him a silver dollar for it. This was a huge moment for Barnum. He would write, never have I seen the time, nor shall I ever again, when I felt so rich, so absolutely independent of all the world, as I did when I looked at that monstrous big silver dollar and felt that it was all my own. Talk of cartwheels. There was never one half so large as that dollar looked to me. I believed without the slightest reservation that this entire earth and all its contents could be purchased by that wonderful piece of bullion and that it would be a bad bargain at that. <laughs> I love little kid logic. He wanted more of those shiny coins. In 1816, a dollar, according to inflation calculators, uh, worth about 20 bucks uh, today. I love it. I remember my grandpa, uh, or actually, uh, actually my grandpa and my grandma, uh, gave me a savings account when I was nine or 10. And when I'd saved up over $100 mowing lawns, I felt loaded. I flipped into Sears and JCPenney catalogs in awe of all the toys I could buy. I felt powerful. Uh, my daughter Monroe got really into saving money a year or two ago, maybe two or three years. She'd count and recount her money all the time. It was hilarious. Just bring out her little wad of cash, just constantly be counting it. Didn't want to put it in the bank because she liked the, the feel of the cold, hard cash in her palm. She too felt so rich. She could afford to go to Target, you know, get whatever Shopkins they were selling. Gave her such a good feeling of independence, such a cool and cute childhood moment. Uh, also at the age of six, Barnum started going to school in Bethel. Bethel's a town in Fairfield County, Connecticut, about 69 miles from New York City. Population was 18,584 at the 2010 census. Way less back in 1810. Historians have estimated the population was under 2,000, around 1,700 residents before 1860. Uh, sometime in 1820, when PT was nine or 10, he finally went to check out the magnificent island his grandfather had deeded him at birth. He knew it as Ivy Island for almost his entire life, which granted, not very long at this point, Barnum had heard his grandfather jokingly tell people that Barnum was the richest boy around, the only boy in this part of the country who owned his own Ivy Island. When the day in 1820 came that he finally got to visit, his mom said to him, now don't become so excited when you see your property as to let your joy make you sick. For remember, rich as you are, that it will be 11 years before you can come into possession of your fortune. <laughs> Barnum was fucking pumped. Couldn't wait to see his private island. He daydreamed for years, right? About the grand house he could have built there someday, all the adventures he'd have. He had all kinds of plans for this island. He and his grandpa, they proceeded to trudge through a substantial bit of bog and swamp to make it to this quote-unquote Ivy Island. And when he finally steps over a little makeshift bridge his grandpa constructed, he laid his eyes upon his land and it was not what he had hoped. Like not even close. <laughs> this is so fucked up. It's just a tiny little dirt heap in the middle of the swamp surrounded by essentially just a shitty little pond. He had been duped big time. This whole thing was one of his grandpa's fucked up jokes. <laughs> he wrote later, the truth flashed upon me. I'd been the laughingstock of the family and neighborhood for years. My valuable Ivy Island was an almost inaccessible, worthless bit of barren land. And while I stood deploring my sudden downfall, a huge black snake, one of my tenants, approached me with an upraised head. I gave a shriek and rushed for the bridge. This was my first and need I not say my last visit to Ivy Island. His family neighbors would give him shit about his wealth uh, and his island for years uh, and just, you know, rib him about this joke, especially Grandpa Phineas. Clearly, his family had an unusual sense of humor. I mean, wow. I, I love a good practical joke. And while I find this one to be pretty damn funny, it's also, it's also pretty fucked up, pretty cruel. Dude was, you know, 10 years old. They've been building this up his entire life. Whole family's in on it. Mom, Grandpa, you know, obviously everybody else is keeping the secret. They went hard on this joke. I love messing with my kids for like a few minutes, maybe like a day or a little bit longer. I guess I did lie to my kids. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did lie to my kids for a couple of years and told them that their grandma was part of a Japanese drumming troupe uh, and toured the world. 
But they, but they weren't like invested in that one. That was just like a weird piece of trivia that they bought for a couple of years. Uh, I'm way more fucked up than the average person. And, and, I, <laughs> and I would feel terrible if I'd gotten Kyler Monroe all pumped up to inherit like magical land, some magical island for years. And then I just take him out in the swamp <laughs> just show him a dirt mound. Here's your little island, you fucking idiot. Ha! God, you're stupid. I can't believe you trusted your entire family and everyone you know to not lie to you your whole life about something that had become the most important thing in the world to you. Ah, this incident had to have strongly influenced who he became, his future love of humbuggery. God, they got him hard. Make me imagine some sort of like really horrible hidden camera prank show, right? One where you get to see people react to find out they've been lied to their entire lives about something really important. <laughs> Just some parents sitting down with some like 18-year-old. Sherry, uh, you know, we've been talking to you about your college fund for your whole life. You, you know that. You know, we've been setting aside money each and every year for 18 years. We've told you, if, if you don't want to use it for school, you can use it to start a small business. You, you, you can use it to put it towards a, a down payment on a, on a house. But we have never told you how much it's worth. Well, today's the big day. You might want to sit down for this. Your college fund, after 18 years of contributions, is worth $18. We put $1 <laughs> aside each and every year for 18 years. How funny is that? <laughs> Joke's on you. You can't afford to go to college. You can't start a business. You can't ever buy a house. Uh, outside of being ruthlessly pranked, it seems Barnum's childhood was pretty typical. He was raised in a Christian household. His mom rewarded him for getting every word right from passages in the New Testament for, and the catechism. Catechism. There we go. <laughs> you can tell I didn't study it a lot. Uh, there was a little token the kids would receive for reciting the right words and Barnum enjoyed collecting the many pieces needed for the tiny prize that was ultimately involved. He would continue to go to church on Sunday throughout his life. Humbuggery and religion coexisted just fine in his head and heart, it appears. He was also expected to help out a lot around the house and at his father's business, as kids, you know, were expected to back then. One of Papo Philo's side businesses was a farm where PT had the responsibility of driving and fetching the cows, carrying in firewood, shelling corn, uh, weeding beets and cabbages. His grandpa also let him make some side money on the farm. He would let him do extra work, like riding the horse that would lead the ox team and pull the plow for 10 cents a day. Then he'd take the 10 cents and buy molasses and make some candy and sell that candy to other kids in the area. Love it. God, I was not that smart as a kid or industrious. Maybe I just didn't have the same kind of people advising me. I don't know. It just never occurred to me to take what little money I had and instead of just spending it, instead of just blowing it or just letting it sit in an account, uh, actually reinvesting it into something that could make more money. I was just like, sweet, I can get some candy. I can get some baseball cards. Uh, Kyler Monroe, though, both of them actually sold candy at school. Uh, I, don't, I don't know who, who told them about it or how they thought of it, but they, they started buying these big bags of mints. You know, they just cost them a couple bucks. And then they would sell the mints at school for just like a quarter each, like a quarter per little mint. And dumb kids actually bought that. And they made a hell of a profit until the school shut them down because uh, some of their classmates were not able to eat their hot lunch. <laughs> they blew all their fucking hot lunch money on overpriced mints. No one shut down Barnum. During the holidays, he'd expand his offerings, offering additional sugary options and cherry rum. He found a market for cherry rum and soldiers. Ah, oh, the good old days. When a child could make homemade rum and sell it to grownups. In addition to being a young businessman, Barnum was also a good student throughout school with only a few people thought to be ahead of him. He was especially skilled at math. He once wrote, in arithmetic, I was unusually quick. And I recollect at the age of 12 years being called out of bed one night by my teacher who had laid a small wager with a neighbor that, that I could figure up and give the correct number of feet in a load of wood in five minutes. He did it in two minutes. Uh, how fucking weird is it that his teacher felt comfortable coming over to his parents' house and having him woken up late at night to help him win a bet? That sounds like his teacher was drunk. 
right? That sounds like a drunk decision. It's like he's out at some tavern. He's, no, no, no. Well, I don't have a weight. No, we can sell this now. We can sell this right now. Well, back, they can wake him up. They can wake him up. I don't care if kid. I want my money. I want my crush numbers, you little nerd. Uh, also at the age of 12, Barnum would learn a valuable business lesson during his first trip to New York. Uh, in 1822, Papa Philo, now keeping a tavern, hosted a guest named Daniel Brown of Southbury, Connecticut. Brown had rode to the Barnum house with a herd of fat cattle he was planning to take to New York to sell to a slaughterhouse. Young PT had never been outside his small town. New York seemed like a big foreign country. The young Barnum listened to the man as he told his adventures in the big city and beyond, and he was awestruck. And when Brown mentioned he was looking for a boy to run alongside the cattle and assist in driving, Barnum, only 11 at the time, uh, he knew he needed to be that boy. Philo was hesitant, but Barnum bugged his dad until he agreed. Now this little farmer kid with a spark of something was headed off to New York for a visit and with a job. And how fucking weird is this? This is weirder than the teacher stuff. Very different times. Imagine sending your 12-year-old off with some dude you don't really know. Some dude who just swung through your tavern. You know, and you're gonna send him out of town with this guy, your kid for like roughly a week. Some dude you can't call or text. If your kid goes missing, you have no way of finding this dude, or at least it would be very hard. Imagine some dude asking to take your boy with him to New York now. All right, I'm hoping to take a boy to New York with me for the week. Help with the horses. I could, I could hire a full-grown man, I reckon, but I'd prefer a boy. I'd like a boy for the journey. That's a guy I'd be okay with murdering today. Like if you told me in private that a person, uh, a stranger, wanted to bring your 12-year-old boy with him to New York for a week. And then he told me that, you know, 30 seconds later, you killed this guy. I would never turn you in, right? I would reassure you that you probably did the right thing. Uh, Barnum's job started the next morning. The night before he left for the trip, he was so excited he couldn't sleep. He dreamed of cities paved with gold and castles rising high into the air. A little over the top, but you know, he was 12. The trip itself was not as glamorous as he'd hoped. Uh, at one point, a horse fell and rolled over Barnum's foot, giving him a bad sprain. He didn't want to complain, lose the gig, so he struggled to keep up for a few hours. Then Brown took pity on him and let him ride behind him on a, on a horse most of the way. All in all, the trip lasted a week, and Barnum would get a great lesson in economics while he was there. His mom had given him a dollar for his trip expenses, and Barnum thought that would be plenty. Such a simple time compared to now. Here's a dollar. Enjoy your week-long trip to the city with a total stranger. Uh, when P.T. got to New York, he went to a confectionery store and bartered down the price of a few oranges. His trip was starting off well. She agreed to give him a good deal only if he promised to shop with her exclusively for all his fruit needs while in town. He agreed. He now had some tasty oranges, a delicacy in New England at the time, and he still had 80 cents in his pocket. Life was great. Then he decided to reward himself for making such a shrewd bargain by buying an amazing toy gun that fired a little wooden stick a decent distance. Bought that from the same lady. She sold toys too. None of the other kids back home had ever seen a toy like that. He's pumped. And then that night, because, you know, he was 12, he went into the bar room of the hotel he and his uh, business, you know, partner man buddy were staying at, and he started shooting around this toy gun wildly in a room full of paying customers. What could go wrong? Uh, solid 12-year-old decision-making. He soon nails a barkeep right in the eye. Of course he does. And then that guy runs him down and proceeds to, quote, box his ears until Barnum's head rung because 1822. The good old days, when it was socially acceptable just to beat other people's children. <laughs> Barnum's feelings were hurt. He thought it was just, he was just being funny. You know, it's just like a joke, like his grandpa would play. And then the guy overreacted. Next day, he returns to the toy shop, buys something called a torpedo, which when thrown into the ground with any force would explode loudly. Sounds to me like one of those like snap pops, you know, bang pops, bang snaps. People call them different things. The little simple paper fireworks that uh, bang and smart spark when you throw them against the ground or maybe your little sister's leg. Uh, he bought six cents worth of these torpedoes, returns to the bar room, takes two out of his pocket, throws them as hard as he can against the side of the hall where the crowd is passing. Incredibly, 
Instead of being amused, people are angry. The owner now gets a hold of PT, <laughs> smacks him in the face. Because again, it's, it's 1822. PT's bummed. Nobody likes his pranks. To console himself, he returns to the toy store the next day. His dignity bruised. Now he buys a watch, a breast pin, a top. He also gets some candy. And he thinks to himself, I'm still a rich man. He goes to bed that night with 11 cents, dreaming of showing off his possessions to everybody back home. He has another opportunity to go to the store the next day. When he does, he notices, uh, you know, some items he hadn't seen before. And one of them is an awesome two-bladed knife with a gimlet and a corkscrew. Fuck yeah. He had to get it. I understand. I had to have shit like that when I was, you know, 12. Sometimes I still wonder what happened to my cool-ass Rambo knife. Uh, but that sweet-ass knife was 31 cents. He only has 11. He's devastated. He wrote, I learned to my astonishment that my funds were exhausted, but have the knife I must. So I proposed to my kind friend, the shopwoman, that she should receive back the top and breast pin at a slight deduction from what I had paid for them. And then taking my 11 cents, should let me have the knife. The kind creature consented, and thus I made my first swap. He proceeds to trade back his little toy gun for a reduced price, other toys, you know, implements, and now he gets that knife. But now he has no money. <laughs> he hadn't thought shit through because, you know, again, he's 12. So later that same day, uh, he wants some candy. And he trades back the knife for some candy. Papa Taylor turned him into a sugar junkie. Barnum is so hard up for that sweet candy that right before he leaves town to return to Connecticut, he even trades a nice, uh, with a nice lady who has a son about his age, uh, his two pocket handkerchiefs for more of that delicious kid crack. And he trades a pair of extra stockings his mom had given him for the trip as well. So now, when it's all said and done, he heads back home to Bethel, has no money, no cool-ass knife, a couple fewer possessions than he had when he left. Uh, he said about his journey later, I had a thousand questions to answer and found my brothers and sisters much disappointed that I had brought them none of the fruits of my dollar. My mother examined my wardrobe and finding it two pocket hand handkerchiefs and one pair of stockings short, I was whipped and sent, and sent to bed. So many beatings on this journey. He continued, thus terminated my first visit to New York. I was, however, for a long time, quite aligned among the schoolboys, for I had been to New York and seen with my own eyes many wonders which they had only heard tell of. Barnum would learn so much from this trip. He learned how careless people could be with their money when they really, really wanted something. And he later got rich being good at figuring out what people really wanted, what they would spend a lot of money to see. Uh, August, 19, or August of 1825, P.T.'s maternal grandma steps on a rusty nail in her garden and dies. Not immediately. It took a few days. I worded that strangely. Uh, what an old-timey thing to die from. Thank you, scientists, for tetanus shots. Uh, P.T., freshly 15, is overcome by the weight of his grandma's passing. He promised her on her deathbed that he would do good by God and by his fellow man. He would not always do good by his fellow man, but, you know, none of us always do. Uh, P.T. was working on some new business ventures by the time he was 15. He learned a lot again in that, uh, you know, that New York trip, how to be resourceful. He saved up enough doing odd jobs to buy a sheep, a calf, a few other possessions. He'd also come to the realization that farm work was not for him, not long-term. He hated physical work. He went as far as to call himself lazy when it came to physical work. Uh, he wasn't lazy. He just didn't like manual labor. He liked working with his mind. After convincing his father he wasn't cut out for farm life, his dad, Philo, got him a position at a shop in town. It was actually uh, uh, Philo's shop, which uh, he owned in partnership with a different guy named Hiram Weed. Hiram Weed, that's a pretty sweet name. Uh, there they sold dry goods, groceries, hardware, no marijuana, I know of, uh, other lo items locals would need. Barnum loved it. He never looked back on, uh, he would never look back on farm work again. He now thought of himself as a proper gentleman with a proper job. He could devote himself to the art of haggling, one of his favorite pastimes. He practiced how to strike a good bargain, how to use exaggerations and careful deceptions to make a sale. He didn't care who he's making a trade with or a sale. Anyone was fair game. Shop shopkeeper in New York didn't care that he was a kid. Why should he care? He would write that he drove many a sharp trade with old women who traded for their purchases in butter or eggs and men who exchanged for our commodities, hats and hickory nuts. 
Sony started to buy candy from his dad's store under his personal account, and then he would sell that candy to kids when they came in his dad's store. That's so weird to me. It's like, it's not, it sounds like he was like reselling his dad's shit. <laughs> I worked at a grocery store when I was a teen, my last two years of high school. I, I can't imagine buying candy from the store, then reselling that same candy to kids coming into that same store. I picture Barnum whispering to kids, you know, at the cash register. Say, hey, don't, don't buy this from here. No, don't, don't buy it from the store. I, I, I get this stuff at a wholesale price. I can cut you a better deal. Just buy, just buy, meet me out back. Uh, he would then graduate quickly into what would uh, be considered his first real humbug, the lottery. Americans have long loved a lottery. Some of the U.S. earliest and most prestigious colleges, such as Harvard, William and Mary. I should probably say prestigious, since I'm talking about Harvard, William and Mary, Yale and Princeton, uh, funded by lotteries. Historian Neil Milliken, using newspaper advertisements in the colonial era, found at least 392 lotteries were held in the 13 colonies. The financiers of Jamestown, Virginia, for instance, funded lotteries to raise money to support their colony. In the early post-independence era, legislators commonly authorized lotteries to fund schools, roads, bridges, other public works. Uh, in the 1790s, the average resident of New York and Philadelphia spent the modern equivalent of $1,400 a year on lottery tickets. These lotteries were controversial back then, just like for many, gambling is controversial now. Attitudes were mixed on how honest they were, how good gambling was for embedding a good work ethic in the general public. Evangelical reformers in the 1830s began denouncing lotteries on moral grounds and petitioned legislatures and con uh, constitutional conventions to ban them. By the 1850s, lotteries would take a sour turn in the eyes of many in the public and would go underground. But back in the 1820s, lotteries were still fair game for a vast number of people looking to improve themselves by taking a spin on a metaphorical wheel of fortune. In the lottery at Barnum's store, even the good Christian kids were encouraged by their parents to pay a small fee for the chance to win cakes, oranges, molasses candy, such a simple game. Reminds me of uh, cake raffles, cakewalks. They did in high school to raise money. Buy, buy a ticket for a dollar for the chance to win a cake. Uh, Barnum sold tickets for less than it would cost to buy some candy if you won. Uh, and in the process, because of how many he sold, he would make way more money on the candy through these lotteries than he would if he just sold it straight up. And it was more fun, right? People love the rush of gambling. More fun to win something than it is to buy it. I get it. Reminds me of those, uh, you know, uh, claw arcade games or like carnival prizes. You spend 30 bucks to win a shitty stuffed animal that would cost you five bucks in a store. I used to love winning prizes for Kyler Monroe in those claw games. I'm a sucker, just like everybody else. Uh, the 1820s were a crazy time in the U.S. when it came to lotteries, a time when people would gamble at lotteries to raise money for church, and then, uh, you know, the pastor at church would preach against gambling. Barnum was still a teenager. Now he was the manager of his own lottery. On September 7th, 1825, P.T.'s father gets sick, fever, dies at only 48 years old. So many people died of illness back then. Uh, Barnum is... Still just 15, his mom now has five kids to raise on her own, the youngest being seven. Fortunately, PT's mom was industrious as well. Uh, she took several different jobs, managed to make uh, ends meet. Barnum helped bring in money as well. He was able to get a job as a clerk at a store a mile northwest of Bethel in a place called Grassy Plain. His salary was room and board plus $6 a month. And he got right back to running more lotteries. On Sundays, Barnum would head to his mom's house to spend time with the family, do laundry, go to church. Even after her husband's death, Mama Barnum, would still keep the town tavern for years, and that worked out really well for P.T. It allowed him to meet the love of his life. During one of P.T.'s visits, a young customer asked him to escort her back home. Barnum explains, I went in and was introduced to a fair, rosy-cheeked, buxom-looking girl mm -hmm, with beautiful white teeth named Cherry Hallett. Hallett, there we go. <laughs> uh, of course, Cherry was a nickname, which I subsequently learned meant charity. I assisted the young lady into her saddle, was soon mounted on my own horse, and we trotted slowly towards Bethel. 
Barnum was instantly smitten. He wrote the brief view that I had of this girl by candlelight, had sent all sorts of agreeable sensations through my bosom. I was in a state of feeling quite new to me and as unaccountable as it was novel. I opened conversation with her and finding her affable and in no degree prim or stuck up. That might have been the most polite description of getting horny I've ever read. All sorts of agreeable sensations through my bosom. Much more eloquent and classy than the brief view I had of her made my dick so fucking hard. <laughs> Holy diamond cutter, Hail Lucifina. I could have driven wooden nails with my dick into concrete. Woo! Uh, Barnum soon wished the trip was 20 miles instead of one. On the trip, he learned that she was a tailor. He wanted to learn more. But when he returned to Bethel on subsequent Sundays, he didn't see her. It would be quite some time before he would properly see her again. Two years later, in the summer of 1827, the owners of the store Barnum worked at sold their business. He would remain working under new ownership for a while. But back in autumn of 1826, a friend of Barnum's named Oliver Taylor, possibly a distant cousin, had offered him a position at his store in Brooklyn. Now Barnum decided to take him up on it. So back to New York he goes. Uh, the store was at the corner of, excuse me, the store was at the corner of Sands and Pearl. Uh, the job required Barnum to get up early, which wasn't his thing. This <laughs> is so strange. He quickly invented a kind of like an early wake-up call service. A person would pull a string that was attached to Barnum's toe and the string ran out the window down three stories <laughs> down to the street and that would wake him up. And he paid somebody to pull that string down on the sidewalk two shillings a week. What the fuck? I guess this is clever, but also what a great way to have some asshole just like yank your toe halfway off your foot in the middle of the night. I picture young Barnum just painfully limping along one morning. What happened, PT? Some hoodlum jerked my toe string. Nearly decapitated my most important podiatary digit. Uh, at his new job, Barnum quickly became familiar with how everything worked. Soon, almost all the day-to-day -day tasks, which included uh, goods to purchase, how much of them were, were left to him. He visited markets, wholesale auctions, other trading hotspots where he got lower prices by paying in cash. He would also team up with other business owners to buy goods in bulk for a larger discount. Learned a lot about business, right? Then the men would split up what they needed. Uh, he was also able to track down that shopkeeper who had humiliated him when he was 12 by letting him keep trading shit back, you know, over and over again, uh, you know, until he had nothing. And he bought that sweet knife from her again and he fucking killed her with it. Mm -hmm. Dun, 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 payback, motherfucker. Uh, no, he didn't do that. He quickly became popular in merchant circles for his success and work ethic, but the lifestyle wasn't for him. He didn't like being on a fixed salary. He'd later say, my disposition is and ever was of a speculative character. And I'm never content to engage in any business unless it is of such a nature that my profits may be greatly enhanced by an increase of energy, perseverance, attention to business, tact, etc. I get it. That's part of what appealed to me about comedy. No fixed income ceiling. I mean, of course, you know, you can also do it for years and make nothing. And that's not fun. But while you're making nothing, you can still dream that you might make quite a bit for doing the same job you already love, and that's super fun. Not everyone has a stomach for it, but it keeps life interesting. Some people gamble with lotteries. Barnum, myself, we like to gamble with our entire careers. Uh, Barnum wanted to see exponential increases according to his effort and good judgment, and that just wasn't happening in Brooklyn. February of 1828, Barnum decides to venture out on his own. That month, his grandfather Phineas wrote to him and said that if Barnum came to Bethel, he could establish some kind of business and live rent-free in half of his grandpa's carriage house. And Barnum agreed. And when he made it back home, he found out that the uh, carriage house was uh, located on that fucking swamp island. And the business was a lemonade stand he was allowed to run. Boom, motherfucker. Got you again with another papa prank. Hey, idiot. You quit your job. You moved back home because you, you trusted me? Your grandpa? The man who made you the laughingstock of our entire town when you were 10? You fool. Uh, no, grandpa was good this time. Uh, grandpa let Barnum turn a part of the carriage house where he got to stay for free into a retail fruit and confectionery store sourcing his products from his connections in New York City. The tiny store had its grand opening 
on the first Monday of May, 1828. Barnum had candy, fruit, a barrel of ale, some other goods he hoped to sell. He later say that he was never as nervous as he was for his first real business venture to open. I love it. It's adorable. Barnum was worth all of 120 bucks, about $3,600 today. He put everything he had into this one small store. He was also just 17, still two months away from his 18th birthday. He barely slept the night before the grand opening. He was so nervous. He just wanted it so bad. He had so much passion for seeing it succeed. Uh, Barnum's worries were all for nothing. By noon on opening day, he was so busy, he had to call in an old school friend to help him out. Hail Nimrod! By the end of the day, the ale barrel was dry, the goods were mostly sold, and he had 63 bucks in his day's receipts. He knew he had himself a winner. Over the next few days, he re-upped on ale and brought in more New York City goods, pocketbooks, combs, breads, pocket knives, toys, and he sold them all. Throughout the summer, his business boomed. In the winter, he added stewed oysters to his inventory, which uh, apparently, for some reason, generated an even greater profit. I don't, I don't mind an oyster, but I didn't know that a, a stewed oyster was such a hot ticket item. His grandpa then advised that he start up another lottery. And he did. He actually started a super lottery, contracting other lotteries at the rate of 10, uh, 10% commission. The lottery agency got bigger and bigger, offering larger cash prizes and, of course, more profits for Barnum himself. He learned all sorts of tricks within the lottery business that would eventually be the reason that lotteries would be banned in the near future. Barnum was raking in the dough. He got offers from many to set up a lottery agency in New York, New Jersey, uh, as far as Nashville. But he wouldn't budge. He wasn't ready to move. He had a situation with a young tailor in Bethel that needed to be dealt with. He'd been holding on to a boner for many years. And he needed release. He reconnected with the girl he escorted home from the family tavern. In the summer of 1829, Barnum, just 19 years old, asked Cherry Hallett, Hallett, God, why do I want to call her Hallett? Cherry Hallett to marry him. She was only 21 at the time, and she accepted. The two married a few months later on November 8th, 1829, and got it on! Uh, they were going to have four kids, and she would be his confidant and companion for the next 44 years. He would say of her, I became the husband of one of the best women that was ever created. I have long felt assured that had I waited 20 years longer, I could have not found another woman so well-suited to my disposition and so valuable as a wife, a mother, and a friend. Yet I do not approve nor recommend two early marriages. More sound advice here. This dude, whether or not he was an exploited piece of shit, he definitely knew how to dish out good advice. Uh, yeah, getting married at the age of 19 worked out for him. But once he'd seen a lot more of the world, lived a lot longer, he knew that getting married so young in general, not a good idea. Again, I agree. Odds are, if you explore any of the world at all, and or really explore yourself. You're going to change a lot in your late teens, right? You're early in mid-20s. Most of us don't really seem to settle into who we're going to be for the most part for the rest of our lives until we're in our 30s. You still change, but the core values you possess seem, uh, you know, a lot more fixed at, say, 30 than they are at 19. At least that's what I think. Uh, at this point, Barnum had several businesses, a general store, a book auction, some real estate speculation, statewide lottery network. Rather than rest on his success, he kept expanding. In the winter of 1829-1830, Barnum opened a lottery office in the village of Danbury as well as offices in Norwalk, Stamford, Middleton, a few other places. 1830, Charity gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter. They named her Caroline Cornelia Barnum. All right, solid name. June of 1830, Barnum bought three acres of land in Bethel from his grandpa for his new family. Not shitty old Swamp Island land. There, he had a two-and-a-half-story house built for himself and his wife. Around this time, he started thinking less of auctions. It was starting to become a headache. A couple students, some other uh, little hustlers stole from him. He began looking for a way out of that business. In the spring of 1831, Barnum started a business with his uncle that sold an assortment of dry goods, groceries, hardware. Uh, October 17th, 1831, P.T. bought his uncle's share of that store and then uh, advertised that they'd gone their separate ways and that he was running the store exclusively. Now, why would he advertise this? He wanted to make it known that he was a proprietor. He was a big man. 
He wanted to build public confidence in him because he now wanted to enter the world of politics. He wanted to run against some Calvinists that were trying to pass some laws he didn't like. He was a staunch advocate against blue laws proposed by Calvinists, so-called blue laws, that sought to restrict gambling, travel, and more fucking fun killers. Those Calvinist joy haters wanted to make it illegal to do just about anything on Sunday other than go to church. Not kidding. They wanted to get rid of, you know, gambling, working, drinking, traveling on Sunday. Can't even take a vacation on the Lord's Day. That sounds reasonable to you. Well, we can't really be friends. Barnum would uh, write several letters to the Danbury Weekly paper expound, expounding on what he saw to be the dangers of a sec sectarian interference, which was then apparent in political affairs. He wanted a free market, but the newspaper ran by some Calvinists they didn't agree, and they refused to print his letters. So Barnum went out and purchased his own printing press. Love it. On October 19th, 1831, Barnum started a weekly paper he called the Herald of Freedom in Danbury, Connecticut, and it did well. Its circulation eventually grew to nearly every state that existed at the time. Guy had a will of steel. He didn't fuck around when it came to goal accomplishment, right? I bet a part of him loved obstacles, fun puzzles to solve, fun challenges to conquer. Barnum went hard in the paint with his new paper, maybe a little too hard, got a little reckless with the law. His editorials against church elders, he accused one of being a spy in a Democratic caucus. He accused others of many other things, led to some libel suits, and he would actually end up in jail for a time over all this. Here's how he would explain it. A criminal prosecution was brought against me for stating in my paper that a man in Bethel, prominent in the church, had been guilty of taking usury of an orphan boy and for severely commenting on the fact in my editorial co columns. When the case came to trial, the truth of my statement was substantially proved by several witnesses and even by the prosecuting party. But the greater truth, the greater the libel, and I had used the term usury instead of extortion or note shaving or some other expression which might have softened the verdict. The result was that I was sentenced to pay a fine of $100 and be imprisoned in the common jail for 60 days. The most comfortable provision was made for me in Danbury Jail. My room was papered and carpeted. I lived well. I was overwhelmed with the constant visits of my friends. I edited my paper as usual and received large accessions to my subscription list. And at the end of my 60 days term, the event was celebrated by a large concourse of people from the surrounding country. What a jail stint. Growing his business from behind bars like he was Pablo Escobar or maybe El Chapo. Uh, when he got out, he was immediately heralded as a defender of the free press. Three years later, in 1834, Connecticut bans lotteries. This is uh, still Barnum's main income at this time. And this, uh, this, this stings, fucking Calvinists. What was Barnum to do now? Give up, sit in a tavern, bitch about how Uncle Sam ruined his life? There wasn't anything he could do about it? No. He goes back to New York City. Find a new way to make a fortune. He moves to a house on Hudson Street. Unfortunately, this time, uh, after several years away from the city, he didn't have many connections left there. The few connections he did have allowed him to make a small living, but his provisions were running out and his little family was in ill health. Finally, after over, after over six months in New York, on May 1st, after making several hundred dollars selling property in Bethel, he's able to open a small private boarding house at 52 Frankfurt Street. He also went in a grocery store at 156 South Street with John Moody. And these businesses allowed him to pay the bills, but he wanted more. He still wanted to find the next big thing, and it would become the summer that he would take his first step, that summer, that he would take his first step towards becoming the greatest showman on two continents. In July of 1835, Barnum got word from a connection, Coley Bartram, about an interesting person, Joyce Heth. We met her earlier. If you'll recall, she claimed to be very, very old, 161, and to be the nursemaid of General George Washington, her dear little George. Dazzling visitors, she often said, in fact, I raised him. And God, I hope she came up with that all on her own, for, for various reasons. I don't want to believe she was ruthlessly exploited, although, you know, she quite possibly was. Also, uh, I'm just entertained by people who tell tall tales. I hope these were her tales. Reminds me of a cook I once worked with, a woman named Season. Who knows? That's what she went by. Who knows what her name was? She was a pathological liar. I worked with her back in 1999, 2000, during my brief stint in the residential treatment game. 
And she was the cook at a group home. I worked at to cater to troubled teens and uh, non-troubled teens running away from troubled situations. And she never claimed to be George Washington's nursemaid, but she did claim to have done about 160 years worth of different jobs. Uh, we joked about it all the time when she wasn't around. She was a long-haul trucker. She was a school teacher. She worked in IT for a while. She was a computer programmer. She owned numerous businesses. Uh, and she didn't just do this like a day here and a day there. Uh, she'd say like, you know, you know, she was a trucker for t- 10 years. She was a school teacher for 12 years. She ran a restaurant for seven years. Uh, she lived in San Francisco running a restaurant for 15 years. Uh, lived overseas for 10 years. Lived in Denver for 10 years. On and on and on. And she was around far- 45 years old. <laughs> we used to joke that she would have had to have been some kind of immortal Highlander to have pulled off everything she claimed she did. Uh, back to Heth, historians do not agree on her actual birth date, although most believe she was born in 1756, which would have made her around 80 years old at the time of her death in 1836 in New York City. Uh, not quite 161. Little is known about Heth before Barnum purchased her in 1835, although one 19th century magazine article claimed Joyce Heth was born on the island of Madagascar on the southeastern coast of Africa. Uh, but scholars have not, you know, uh, confirmed Heth's place of birth. A promoter named R.W. Lindsay was exhibiting her in Philadelphia when Barnum heard about her. Lindsay had purchased Heth earlier that year from John S. Bowling, her previous owner, who first marketed her as an elderly woman who, with a purported connection to George Washington. Uh, but he was not much of a showman. On August 10, 1835, at Niblo's Garden in New York City, Barnum started a seven-month traveling exhibit of Joyce Heth. In the exhibit, she told stories about little George and sang a hymn or two. Claimed that Heth earned Barnum $1,500 a week. Big amount of money at that time. How much of that did she get to keep? Wish I could find that info. So many details regarding Heth that we don't know are so important when it comes to the quality of Barnum's character, like the core of his morality. Did she want to do this? Did it make her happy? Uh, Most importantly, perhaps, did Barnum make her life better than it was before? Did he give her something to be proud of? Did he see her as a business partner, partner, an equal, or as just property? Would Would he have wanted someone to treat his own grandmother as he treated her? Whatever their relationship was, what is not disputed is that she launched Barnum's career as a showman. Hess' emaciated physical appearance helped make Barnum's deceptions about her extreme old age seem plausible to audiences. Barnum's publicity described her as weighing 46 pounds and noted that she was also blind and had no teeth. Really hoping there was some exaggeration going on here. That is so cringy. Uh, The broadside promoting his 1835 show uh, with his new attraction stated, uh, unquestionably the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world and the first person who put cloths on the unconscious infant who was destined to lead our heroic fathers on to glory, to victory, and to freedom. Barnum apparently delivered as promised. One observer pr- uh, wrote that Heth is a mere skeleton covered with skin, and her whole appearance very much resembles a mummy of the days of the pharaohs, taken entire from the catacombs of Egypt. Holy shit. None of this sounds too good. I hope Barnum treated her well behind the scenes, made her last days as comfortable as possible. Uh, also, even if he did, though, uh, hard to spin this into anything other than at least being pretty shitty. Barnum sought to persuade audiences of Heth's connection as George Washington's nurse and her age by citing some false evidence provided to him by her former owner, R.W. Lindsay. Lindsay showed Barnum a contract indicating that Augustine Washington, George Washington's father, owned a 54-year-old enslaved woman named Joyce Heth in 1727. George Washington was born five years later. According to Barnum's promotional literature, she is, we should judge from her looks, certainly far over 100. The press had a field day with all this, and they wrote about Heth's uh, fake stories. People also flocked to papers to publish editorials about how her age must be faked. Uh, so Barnum then announced that upon her death, she would be publicly autopsied. Super cringy. During his time with Aunt Joyce, as he called her, Barnum worked with the media as best he could. He flooded the city with posters and pamphlets. They toured New England uh, as news spread. She was mobbed from city to city. When her fame started to fade, a curious communication appeared in newspapers that claimed she wasn't even a real person. 
She was an automon or uh, uh, automaton made of whalebone, rubber, and mechanical parts. These editorials claimed that Barnum was a ventriloquist and that all conversations with his uh, autom- automaton, I think is how you pronounce it. I was confident in that word until I read it out loud, uh, were completely imaginary. Of course, these were written by Barnum himself. Ticket sales went through the roof. Everyone, everyone wanted to see the robot lady. As he traveled, Barnum was also scouting theater performances, looking for new acts. At one event, he saw actors perform feats of balancing, plate spinning, and stilt walking. He loved it. He especially loved one performer, a man named Signor Antonio. Uh, Signor Antonio rested guns with bayonets on his nose, blowing Barnum's mind. Barnum discovered Signor Antonio's salary was, or, or uh, yeah, I think uh, that's how you say his first name, was $12 a week plus travel expenses. He offered him a better deal, and the two headed back to New York. A day after the death and then public autopsy of Joyce Heth on February 25th, 1836, people learned that she was probably not 160, probably around 80 uh, or 161. Uh, The autopsy had been attended by around 1,500 people, all of whom paid 50 cents each to watch. Now this, there is no way to spin as not being super fucked up. My God, man. He didn't let her rest in her final days of life, at least, you know, let her rest in peace after death. Uh, When Dr. David L. Rogers declared she could not at the utmost have exceeded the age of 80, Barnum then claimed that the body he had examined was a fake and that the real Joyce Heth was still traveling around the country. This claim would bring one of Barnum's first critics out of the woodwork. Uh, Richard Adams Locke, yes, Dick Locke, wrote an editorial called Dissection of Joyce Heth, Precious Humbug Exposed. Uh, People questioned Barnum, but he said simply he took the claims and documents on good faith. He insisted that she actually was as old as her papers claimed and left it at that. Barnum stuck to his lies, moved on to the next business venture. Interesting, the uproar revolving around Barnum tricking people about Heth's age. That's where it lay. Uh, and not around the fact that he was exploiting this poor woman's death in the, in the last months of her life for a financial gain. Uh, Barnum finds his next business venture at Aaron Turner's Traveling Circus Company. Uh, big left turn here. He ventures briefly into performing, not just promoting, hired on as Humbug the Trixie Clown. <laughs> hey, everybody. Would you like to hear a song? Here we go. Don't trust anyone, not even your family. They'll only lie to you. No one gets an island for free. Don't trust a clown like me. I'll take your last cent, sell and candy. I think if I can make some currency, I'll even sell tickets to your nana's autopsy. When it comes to making a buck, humbug the clown, he don't give a fuck. And that's not true. And that's that's a fucking hard melody to sing to. That was, uh, that was just me obviously singing a shitty song. That Calliope track, not an easy tune to uh, make up a melody to go along to. Uh, The circus was an immensely popular form of entertainment in the 19th century. Traveling circuses visited communities large and small across the eastern United States to see them. Uh, Or I'm sorry, uh, they would visit, yeah, communities large large and small across the eastern United States where people would see them. Barnum was hired as a ticket seller, secretary, treasurer at $30 a month, and he got one-fifth of the circus's profits. The circus's owner, Aaron Turner, was a self-made circus man. By the age of 30, back in 1820, he was already part owner of a troupe. It sprung up from one of the circus families that lived in nearby New York State. His seven-year-old son, Napoleon, already a trick rider in the New York City circus. And he believed that any man with health and common sense could become rich if he only resolved to be so. And He was very proud of the fact that he began the world with no advantages, no education, no money. He was a good match for Barnum. Turner, also a practical joker. For one performance, Barnum bought himself a nice black suit to wear to the show. And Turner decided to have some fun with him. When someone asked who Barnum was, Turner said, don't you know? That's the Reverend E.K. Avery, the murderer of Miss Cornell. Uh, Reverend E.K. Avery was one of the first clergymen tried for murder in the U.S. He was acquitted, but the public still believed he killed a 30-year-old woman named Sarah Cornell. Uh, And a lot of people hated him, but few knew what he looked like. 
and Turner made these people think he looked like Barnum. Fun. Uh, the crowd of a dozen quickly turned into around 100, and they mobbed Barnum, <laughs> chased him, yelled that they were going to lynch him, they were going to tar and feather him. Dude literally had to run for his life from an angry mob. Turner finally admitted that he was joking when the mob got a hold of Barnum and some lynching ropes were thrown over some tree branches. Man, this guy loved a good practical joke just as much as Barnum's grandpa. Same last name, too. The, the Turners. Got to stay away from the Turners. <laughs> so, so funny, Aaron. <laughs> so funny how that angry mob uh, almost literally hanged me. Ha ha ha! You really got me. I seriously thought I was dead. Yeah, you could probably tell based on how hard I was crying by how loud I was begging for my life. Too, too funny, man. Too funny. <laughs> Humbug the clown almost ended up dead. <laughs> Chased through town, Clyde crying as he fled. <laughs> I don't know what's happening anymore. On October 7th, 1837, P.T.'s prankster grandpa dies at the age of 77. Barnum is ecstatic. He pays to have him buried on that bullshit swamp island. Joke's on you, grandpa. Now you get this bullshit island. I win. I win. Uh, no, he didn't do that. He was sad. And his grandpa was buried in the Congressional Church Cemetery in Bethel. Uh, June 4th, 1838, Barnum and his troop disband. Barnum heads back to New York, start up his own entertainment venture. Maybe he'd had enough of Turner's super funny jokes. In the spring of 1839, Barnum meets a young man named John Diamond, who is a genius dancer, and he signs a contract with him. He was back in showbiz. Uh, next, he opens up a nightclub. In the spring of 1840, Barnum rents out a saloon in Foxhall Garden, New York, where he puts on variety shows that included singing, dancing, storytelling, and more. But the space didn't work out how he wanted it to. He lost money. By January 2nd, 1841, Barnum had a mere 100 bucks left uh, to his name, so he hit the road again. He toured with John Diamond, made up to 500 bucks a night, went very well. Things were going real well until March 30th, when Barnum and his troop arrived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There, Barnum learns that a rival showman named Jenkins, who had previously poached a performer of his, Francis Lynch, was now exhibiting Lynch under the name of Master Diamond. It was a clear reference to John Diamond, baiting viewers into thinking they were seeing Barnum's famous dancer. Barnum fights back by going to the show undercover and then giving a, giving a sarcastic review to the press. It would be published the next day. After that, R.W. Lindsay, the man who brought Barnum, uh, Joyce Heth, who is now working with Jenkins, sues Barnum for money he claims Barnum owed him on previous transactions, and he wins a $500 settlement. Lindsay would later apologize, 12 years later, for lying about this. Surrounded by strangers, Barnum has no money to post bail and gets thrown in jail on a bullshit charge. Upon his release the next morning, Barnum then has his rival showman arrested for trespassing, a clever legal way to frame his theft of Francis Lynch for using John Diamond's name and reputation. And now Jenkins gets thrown in jail. Both men end up losing a lot of money over all this. The next month, on April 23rd, 1841, after being on the road for eight months, Barnum returns to his family in New York. He did make some money, but he also got thrown in jail, and he was certain he would never be a showman again. Too much drama, too much trouble. But he didn't keep that sentiment very long. On June 14th, 1841, less than two months later, after not being able to find another way to make the money he so desperately wanted outside of showbiz, Barnum once again opens the Vauxhall Saloon. And again, it does not work out well. He would soon close it for a second time and would become, in his own words, as poor as I should ever like to be. He then got a job writing advertisements and notices for the Bowery Amphitheater, where he made $4 a week. He also wrote articles for the Sunday Press, not because they were paying him, but because he wanted to keep his writing ability sharp for future job possibilities. At the age of 31, Barnum is again looking for a new business venture. While still working at the amphitheater for four bucks a week, Barnum finds it. He learns about a collection of curiosities that were on display at Scudder's American Museum on the corner of Broadway and Ann Street. These curiosities are for sale. The asking price, just a bit out of his reach. They wanted $15,000, about half a mil today. However, the museum had been losing money for years and they were anxious to sell. It's not like there was a long list of potential buyers for a curiosity museum that was losing money consistently. 
Barnum writes the owner of the museum a heartfelt letter to meet in person. The owner, Francis Olmsted, agrees to purchase the collection in his own name and allow Barnum to make payments and buy it off of him. He also knocks down the price to $12,000. Barnum is stoked. But then, almost overnight, Francis finds a much more appealing offer, a new buyer, and the curiosities are sold out from under Barnum for $15,000 to the directors of Peel's Museum. And this pisses Barnum off big time. And once more, he reveals the shadier side of his character. He gets busy disparaging Peel's Museum. He writes a bunch of lies to local newspapers, warns them against buying the museum's stock and the editorials. He calls them all sorts of names, makes all sorts of wild, defamatory claims. Their stock plummets. Barnum then renegotiates his deal, contacting Francis Olmsted, saying that if the Peel Museum folk can't pay the other $14,000 they owed in the Curiosities after their initial down payment of just $1,000, he'll still buy them for $12,000. By December 1st, 1841, Barnum receives a letter from the New York Museum Company on behalf of the Peel Museum requesting a meeting. They want him to please stop destroying their reputation, and they actually offer him a job as a manager of a collection of museums. Barnum says he'll take the job for $3,000 a year. They agree under the stipulation that he is not allowed to fuck with them in the papers anymore, and Barnum takes a job. This is so ridiculous. If someone had been trashing me like Barnum was trashing them, I would rather kill them than hire them. Uh, no way to spin this into Barnum being anything other than a piece of shit here. Poor baby, didn't get the museum he wanted, the curiosities he wanted, so he goes full keyboard warrior troll to make up a bunch of lies to destroy his competition. Uh, even shittier, when Barnum takes a job at the Peel Museum, he is still trying to buy Scudder's American Museum, right? He's, he's working for them while trying to take one of their properties out from underneath them. The Peel Museum doesn't know that Barnum now has a contract to buy Scudder's exhibitions for 12000 if they don't meet their due date for their next payment. They don't make that next payment's due date, and Barnum buys the museum out from underneath them. On December 27th, 1841, Barnum buys Scudder's Museum, renames it Barnum's American Museum. He now owns a museum on Broadway, and he, he bought it under the noses of one of the biggest museum conglomerates in New York City. What a weasel. I appreciate the ambition, but if this guy was my business nemesis, oh man, I would wish death upon him. Barnum transforms the, uh, transforms the five-story exterior into a giant, gaudy advertisement for itself, with painted animals, illuminated panels, banners, flags, lights it all up with limelight, a recent invention. He then supposedly, this sounds like some nonsense, but maybe it happened. He hired the worst musicians he could find to play on a balcony above the entrance uh, on the theory that their terrible noise would drive customers inside. And supposedly he was right. And if he really did that, that's genius. And he was a marketing genius. Huge piece of shit too a lot of the times, but I have to give him credit as an innovative marketer. Uh, Barnum opened Barnum's American Museum on January 1st, 1842. His vision was to create a place where families could go for wholesome, affordable entertainment. And he, he, would, he would kind of fulfill that. Uh, he would say that his shows, I don't know that they were really wholesome. Uh, his success drew from the fact that he knew how to entice an audience and what an enticed, and what enticed an audience, excuse me, was not always wholesome. I don't know anything about that. Peanut butter. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Uh, Barnum, fil Barnum filled, my God, learn how to speak, Dan. Barnum filled his American Museum with all sorts of shit. You know what it is? I get excited about this stuff. And that's where I start messing up a lot of words. I could, I could nail way more words if I read it slowly and boring. Barnum filled his American museum with all sorts of shit. Scientific instruments, modern appliances, a flea circus, a loom run by a dog, the trunk of a tree under which Jesus' disciples supposedly sat. I could, I could give the NPR treatment to it. Uh, no, thank you. Ha -ha! Uh, he also had like a hat worn by Ulysses S. Grants, an oyster bar, rifle range, waxworks, glass blowers, taxidermists, phrenologists, pretty baby contests. He had Ned the Learned Seal. <laughs> Ned the Learned Seal, a mummified monkey's torso with a fish's tail. It was called a mermaid. 
a menagerie of exotic animals that included beluga whales in an aquarium. Uh, he would eventually get this. This would take a while to get all this. Uh, giants, little people, Chang and Eng, the Siamese twins, Grizzly Adams trained bears. He would have all sorts of shows uh, there over the years, over the you know coming few decades. Whatever was popular. Uh, I wonder what he would not show if he thought it would make him money. Like if gladiator matches were legal, would he have happily let dudes fight to the death? Maybe. Uh, he, he figured out what the public was willing to pay for. He brought it in. At his peak, the museum was open 15 hours a day, saw as many as 15,000 customers in those 15 hours. Some reports say that around 38 million customers paid a quarter, you know, that a quarter, 25 cent admission price to attend the museum between 1841 and 1865. To put that obscene number in the proper perspective, the total population of the U.S. in 1860 was under 32 million. He made a lot of money off that museum. He averaged, adjusting for inflation, somewhere between six and seven million dollars a year in ticket sales. Then there was all the merchandise he would sell there. Uh, he'd make more off tours he was putting on at the same time during that span. The museum was just one of his business ventures. In 1842, he would find his greatest humbug yet. Visiting his home state of Connecticut on a cold November night in 1842, the great showman tracked down an amazingly small child he'd heard about. The boy, Charles Sherwood Stratton. Born on January 4th, 1838, was nearly five years old. For reasons nobody knew, this unique boy had almost entirely stopped growing years earlier. He'd only grown a few inches since he was six months old. He stood at only 25 inches tall and weighed just 15 pounds. So tiny. Almost old enough to start kindergarten and two ruler sticks tall. Barnum, who had already employed several giants at his famed American Museum, recognized the value inherent in the young boy's abnormal physical proportions. Showman made a deal with the boy's father, local carpenter, offering $3 a week to exhibit young Charles in New York. And he hurried back to New York City to begin promoting his new discovery as Tom Thumb, name of a character from an English children's book. P.T. Barnum was actually Charles's distant relative, a half-fifth cousin twice removed. Pretty distant. Uh, and in New York, he got busy teaching the boy how to sing, dance, mime, and impersonate famous people like Napoleon. And clearly, this is also, uh, you know, a bit cringy here. But again, here's the thing. You know, at this time, there was no American with Disabilities Act. That would be passed in 1990. Welfare would not be established in America until 1935. The Equal Employment Opportunity Act would not be passed until 1972. Is it obviously and unquestionably wrong to parade around someone with physical disabilities, unusual physical characteristics, and or deformities as an oddity or a so-called freak, especially a child? In 2021 America, I would say yes, of course. In 1842 America, I'd say no, it wasn't. Hear me out. If you were someone who came from an impoverished family, came from an impoverished family, uh, you were, say, exceptionally small, like Charles Stratton, your options were extremely limited. Best case, you're a financial burden to a struggling family. Odds are you're never going to get married, never going to get a job, never going to be more than a source of social stigma for your family. You're going to be pitied, gawked at. You're not going to be allowed to attend school. A very good chance that you're abandoned altogether, given to an almshouse or an insane asylum, which became a de facto poorhouse, right? Orphans, the mentally ill, uh, the criminally insane, anyone who couldn't take care of themselves due to mental or physical disability often sent there. With Barnum, you might get rich. You might make so much money you could afford not to just take care of yourself, but also your entire family. You might get married, have a family of your own. You might become a beloved international celebrity. That's what would happen to Charles Stratton. He would become arguably the most famous celebrity alive. Under Barnum's management, Stratton went on to become extremely wealthy. He owned a big house in New York, owned a steam yacht, owned a giant second home slash summer estate on one of Connecticut's Thimble Islands across the Sound from Long Island. When Barnum later got into financial difficulty yet again, Stratton would have enough money to bail him out. Stratton would get married uh, without Barnum and all likelihood, none of that would have happened. Sometimes he's hard to hate. He could have ruthlessly exploited Stratton, but he did not. Uh, and he also made numerous other performers, again, so-called freaks, a lot of money during an age when they would have otherwise likely died in some poorhouse. 
1844, Barnum sets his sights on Europe with young Charles. He takes Tom Thumb on tour, sells out shows left and right, gets a ton of press. Tom Thumb quickly becomes an international celebrity, a child star who would arguably later handle adulthood a lot better than recent child stars like Corey Feldman. Tom would appear twice before British Queen Victoria, who said she was both amused and saddened by the small-statured boy. He also met the three-year-old Prince of Wales, later to become King Edward VII, Queen Elizabeth II's uncle. He met the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas I. Tour was a huge success, with crowds mobbing him wherever he went. Money rolled in both for Barnum and Tom's family back in Connecticut. Uh, you know, he also made Tom's family rich. Barnum, rather than sit back and enjoy the money he made on this tour, he sought out new acts and attractions to work with. While in Europe, he acquired dozens of other attractions for his museums, including automatons, autom automatons, God, that word, and other mechanical marvels. He, uh, he even tried to buy the birthplace of William Shakespeare, almost got away with it. So weird, in 1846, when it was announced that the house would be sold, Barnum convinced or conceived a cunning plan. He would buy it anonymously, ship every brick and timber to the U.S., reconstruct it as the star attraction of his Museum of Curiosities. And then word of his plans got out. He said, British pride was touched and several English gentlemen interfered and purchased the premises for a Shakespeare association. The birthplace would have been a great, uh, you know, uh, attraction as a sensation. Barnum reflected sadly when he, when he snapped up Jumbo, the giant African elephant from a London zoo. One of the people who stopped him was none other than Charles Dickens, who threw himself into the campaign to raise funds against Barnum, organizing readings and benefit performances for Shakespeare's works. In the end, his efforts almost doubled the fundraising and Barnum was prevented from purchasing the house. Good. Glad they kept Shakespeare in England. Seeing Shakespeare's house anywhere else just, you know, wouldn't feel right. Uh, Barnum had the time of his life with young Tom in Europe. Sometimes his wife joined him out on tour. They spent a lot of money on the finest food and drink, stayed in the very best hotel, stayed up late partying. 1848, Barnum returns home and spends a lot of the money he'd been making. At just 38 years old, he had the first of what would end up being four mansions built in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The most famous would be the first, Aronistan, more of a palace than a mansion. Uh, it was so big, he had a housewarming party inside of it for a thousand people <laughs> on November 14th, 1848. The house cost Barnum well over $100,000, roughly over $3 million today, but inflation calculators don't really work for real estate. I think easily it would be worth over 20, if not over $30 million today. It, it sat on 17 acres. The property included magnificent gardens, a greenhouse, various animals that lived on the grounds, a stage, or I'm sorry, a stable and a carriage house, uh, a pump house to provide water inside the home, which is a big deal back then, a large curved driveway. Later mansions would be called Lincroft, Waldemere, and Marina. Big time flex in here. Really wanted to show the other Connecticut folks how much money he'd made. Aroniston was the most fanciful and opulent of all of his mansions, made of sandstone designed with Turkish-style domes, spires, and lacy fretwork. It was inspired by the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, England. Aroniston took two years to build and contained a fresco-walled library, mirrored doors, greenhouses, stables, a ballroom, and a billiard room. The house was equipped with a hot and cold showers, a big innovation back then. Uh, the New York Herald would write about it in 1850, saying, the, propri the proprietor... If he is at home, simply enjoys the innocent pleasure which his establishment affords to others. And I really believe that if he were conditioned to hold it guarded with the exclusiveness which characterizes some of the snobbish arist aristocracy of our land, he would sooner burn it to the ground. Uh, kind of ironic that he would write that because uh, it, it would burn to the down, uh, down to the ground in 1857. Uh, a workman would accidentally burn it down, destroying the building that was then worth about $150,000, over $5 million today, but really worth so much more than that. That would not just be a loss for Barnum, but also for the city of Bridgeport. Uh, the people uh, loved the palace there. It was, uh, you know, used as a space for music, dance, debate, culture. Tourists would visit Bridgeport every year just to see this place. Sadly, there are not any pictures of this architectural wonder. Uh, Barnum kept working as hard as ever after his new palace was built. While on tour in Europe, he heard of another cash cow. 
an exceptionally talented opera singer named Jenny Lind. Very different type of talent for Barnum to work with now. She was not an oddity in any way. Also, she was already a star. Not in America, but in Europe. Uh, Barnum thought that if he could apply his marketing genius to her talent in America, they could both make a fortune. No humbuggery required. By 1849, she was in the midst of her third triumphant season in London. She pulled massive crowds, was nicknamed the Swedish Nightingale for her sweet, hypnotic voice. I uh, I actually get compared to her a lot. Uh, so does Michael motherfucking McDonald. Triple M is the Yacht Rock Jenny Lind, as you probably heard. And I'm, I'm known as the podcast Jenny Lind. Uh, I'm also known as the songbird of my generation. There's a little, here, I'll prove it. There's a little Lynn Diddy called Never Enough. Uh, get ready for your ears to get pregnant, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> got you my, <clears throat> got my, my throat ready. Okay, almost. <clears throat> well, nope, not quite yet. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll just jump in here in a second. <clears throat> okay. I'm trying to hold my breath. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Let it stay this way. And let this moment end. God dang. Set off a dream in me. That's tight. Getting louder now. Can you hear it echoing? Fucking sick. Take my hand, will you? You get it? You heard it. You heard it. Barnum could have easily marketed me into the world's most famous singer. Come on! Back to Lynn, I guess. I mean, it's going to be hard to tell what I just did, though. Uh, although he'd never heard Lynn sing, Barnum knew that concert halls sold out wherever he performed, or wherever she performed. <laughs> wherever, wherever I performed, is what I was trying to say. <laughs> wherever she performed. In October 1849, Barnum hired an Englishman, John Wilton, to locate Lynn, make her an offer. He approached her with a proposal to tour the U.S., realizing that it would be, you know, it would yield uh, large sums for her favorite charity charities. Excuse me. She was a big philanthropist, uh, particularly uh, devoted to the endowment of free schools in her native Sweden, Lind agrees. After checking Barnum's credit with the London Bank on January 9th, 1850, Lind accepts Barnum's offer of $1,000 a night plus expenses for up to 150 concerts in the U.S. Huge gamble. He just committed to uh, up to $150,000 in just her talent expenses. Using the online inflation calculator, again, that's over $5 million. That's just for Lind. There'll be more expenses. Lind insisted on performing with Julius Benedict, German conductor, composer, pianist, uh, with whom she'd worked with in England, and an Italian baritone named Giovanni Belletti. Benedict's fee was $25,000. Belletti's was $12,500. In total, Barnum had to commit $187,500 plus travel expenses to bring Lind and her musical troupe to America. That's around $6.5 million in today's money. Then there's the cost of travel, accommodations, and the big one, advertising. This tour is going to cost him the equivalent of $10 million to produce easy. And riskiest part, Lynn's contract stipulates that the entire sum of the talent fees, $187,500 slash 6.5 mil, had to be deposited in advance with the London Bank Bearing Brothers. Hey, Lucifina! Lynn does not fuck around. Moneymaker. Uh, Barnum hadn't anticipated paying the money in advance. He'd always paid performers as their performances were completed. And he suddenly, if he wants to lock this tour up, he has to raise a lot of money and fast. So he seeks out loans from New York bankers. They refuse to make the loans, though, based on a percentage of the Lynn tour. So Barnum, get this, he mortgages all of his commercial and personal properties. He bets everything on pulling this tour off. He already has a mansion, a huge museum, a family to support, and he risks all of it. I wonder how many arguments that led to at home. 
Holy shit, this guy had some giant fucking balls. Uh, still a bit short after all that, Barnum finally persuades a Philadelphia minister who thought that Lind would be a good influence on American morals to lend him the last $5,000. Now he could lose everything and go into debt. By the skin of his teeth, Barnum pulls off the impossible, sends the $187,500 to London. Now he just has to make her famous in America, since few Americans had ever heard of her. Old Phineas fires up the old press machine now. Uh, one release he wrote says, A visit from such a woman who regards her artistic powers as a gift from heaven and who helps the afflicted and distressed will be a blessing to America. Her uh, you know, bi biographical pamphlet and photograph proclaim it is her intrinsic worth of heart and delicacy of mind that produces Jenny's vocal potency. Uh, Lind has a long record of giving benefit concerts for hospitals and orphanages, and Barnum exploits the shit out of that. Before Lind had even left for England, Barnum is able to make her a household name in America. In August 1850, before Lynn leaves England, Barnum makes a genius promotion move. He arranges for her to give two farewell concerts in Liverpool, where she's already famous, hires a critic who already loves her to cover the concert. The critic gushes about the Liverpool crowd's enthusiastic response and their grief at Lynn's imminent departure. Then he has this review circulated in British, European, and American newspapers a full week before Lynn arrives in New York on September 1st, 1850. He digs up even more money. Gambles further to have reports of Lynn's upcoming American tour saturate American papers. And my God, does this plan work? When her ship pulls into harbor, over 40,000 people are waiting to greet her, trying to get a glimpse of this huge international star. Initial show sales and advanced sales on future shows are so good that a month after arriving on September 3rd, 1850, Barnum and Lynn renegotiate their contract, giving Lynn the original $1,000 per concert they'd agreed to, plus the remainder of each concert's profits after Barnum makes his $5,500 concert management fee. Lind will not perform the entire 150 concerts. She'll do 93, though. Uh, in the end, everyone makes a ton of money. Lind makes over $250,000. Barnum nets over $500,000. The gamble paid off big time. Classic case of big risk, big reward. Barnum made the equivalent of over $17 million. Lind gave the majority of her U.S. concert earnings to charities, including $1,000 to help build a church in Chicago. Barnum, uh, he, uh, he doesn't. In early 1851, the two go on their separate ways. Lind had become uncomfortable with Barnum's relentlessness uh, as far as marketing. It was just so aggressive. And she evoked, she invoked a contractual right to sever ties with him, and they part as friends. Uh, she continues to tour for nearly a year under her own management until May of 1852. Barnum moves on to other things. He continues to search for new attractions, new spectacles that people had never seen before, wouldn't believe, you know, uh, people, and would believe anything he said about them, excuse me. He organized flower shows, beauty contests, dog shows, baby contests, uh, contests that out, sought out the fattest baby, the handsomest twins. In 1853, he started the image-filled filled weekly newspaper, Illustrated News. A year later, he completes and publishes his autobiography, which sells more than a million copies over numerous reprints. Mark Twain loved the book. Uh, the British newspaper, The Examiner, thought it was trashy and offensive and wrote that it inspired nothing but sensations of disgust. It's always been such a polarizing figure. In 1853, Barnum finds another moneymaker. He returns to oddities and discovers a woman named Josephine Clofulia. And he would uh, bring her to his American museum where she would perform. Her stage name was The Bearded Lady. Madame Clofulia was born Josephine uh, de Shane in Switzerland, naturally hairy. She reportedly had a two-inch beard at the age eight. It's assumed she suffered from hypertrichosis, a condition characterized by excessive hair growth over and above the normal for the age, sex, and race of an individual. It can develop all over the body or can be isolated to small patches. Uh, the same condition responsible for so-called werewolf syndrome in extreme cases. 
Madame Clofulia began performing at the age 14 when she started touring Europe with her father to assist her family financially. Josephine later married Fortune Clofulia, a French painter, and gave birth to two children, a daughter who died in infancy, and a son, Albert, who Barnum would exhibit as the infant Esau due to his own hairy appearance. Josephine gained extra fame when she fashioned her beard in the imitation of Napoleon III's. Uh, he would see it in person and like it so much, he would give her a large diamond. Nice. Wish my beard was so sweet. People just gave me diamonds. All four members of her family, Josephine, her husband, son, and father, moved to the U.S. where they joined forces with P.T. Barnum. Barnum had her beard officially measured at six inches, gave Albert his new name, and put him on display. Initially, she was not as popular as he hoped. She was too genial, proper, and ladylike. People found her boring, so Barnum fired up the presses, found a new angle. On July of 1853, a man named William Char took Clophelia to court, claiming that she was actually a man and an imposter, a fraud. During the case, doctors examined Clofulia, verified that she was female, and the case was dismissed, and many suspect Barnum arranged the whole spectacle as a publicity stunt. Uh, 1856 would be the rare bad year for Barnum. He created America's first aquarium at his New York Museum that year. That was good. Uh, he also began investing to develop East Bridgeport, Connecticut. That was bad. He made substantial loans to the Jerome Clock Company to get it to move to his new industrial area, but the company went bankrupt in 1856 and took Barnum's wealth with it. This led to four years of litigation, public humiliation. Guy just couldn't stop taking risks. He clearly loved the risk of constantly trying to double his fortune. 1857 would be a bad year as well. His beautiful Ironistan palace burns to the ground that we discussed. Charles Stratton, a.k.a. Tom Thumb, then goes on another European tour to help bail Barnum out. By 1860, Barnum is back. He expanded his museum's collection of wax figures now. A new exhibit called the Seven Grand Salons demonstrated the ancient seven wonders of the world we just talked about last week. The collections expanded to four buildings. He published a guidebook to the museum, which claimed that there were over 850,000 curiosities to take in. Also in 1860, Barnum finds another hit human attraction, the Chang and Ang Bunker. Uh, or I'm, why am I calling it? It's actually the <laughs> Chang and Ang Bunker. I don't know why I added the there. I don't need to do that. Uh, conjoined twins from um, Siam, present-day Thailand, who came to the U.S. in 1829. The Bunker brothers were born on May 11th, 1811, to a fisherman and his wife, they were joined at the sternum by a small piece of cartilage. In the 19th century, there wasn't enough technical medical knowledge to separate them. Uh, sadly, modern surgical techniques would have separated them uh, easily. In 1829, the twins were quote-unquote discovered by a British merchant named Robert Hunter, who promptly took them on a world tour. Upon termination of their contract with their discoverer, they successfully go into business for themselves, and they did well. Ten years later, in 1839, the twins bought a 110-acre farm near Trap Hill, North Carolina, and became naturalized U.S. citizens. Determined to start living a normal life as possible, the brothers settled on a plantation, uh, bought slaves, not the part I was referring to when I said they did well, uh, and they adopted the last name of Bunker. And then on April 13th, 1843, they married two sisters, Chang to Adelaide Yates and Ang to Sarah Ann Yates. At their Trap Hill home, they would share a bed built for four for, year, for years, and they used the shit out of it. Chang and his wife had 10 children. That's crazy. Ang and his wife had 11. How crazy is that? In time, the wives squabbled and eventually two separate households were set up in the community of White Plains and the twins would alternate spending three days at each home. If some of this sounds familiar, uh, we talked about these twins somewhat randomly in times like episode 178, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge genocide. That was when we learned that they have over 1,500 descendants now, most of whom still live in North Carolina. Uh, that is also when I speculated about their sex lives. How can you not? When one of your brothers having sex with his wife, the other brother, right right there in front of him. Oh, that's so strange. The sternums, you know, connected them. They, I mean, they were right there next to each other. 
Their dicks were never more than just a few feet apart. What a super strange life to always be so close to your brother's dick. So many memories you would have as time went on of hearing your brother fuck. So many memories of hearing your brother take a dump. I mean, I guess all that would just become your normal. You wouldn't know any different, but your normal would be so different than anyone else's normal on earth. I can't stop thinking about the strangest thoughts about them, right? They're not good for my imagination. Uh, Anyway, uh, while they're out fucking right next to each other in North Carolina, Barnum's keeping an eye on them. Not through a people or anything. He's just, uh, you know, aware of them. Without their approval or even knowledge, he displays a wax figure. He had displayed a wax figure of the twins at his American museum starting back in the 1840s. He published a pamphlet about their lives in 1853. And now with large families to support, Chang and Aang returned to showbiz, agreeing to a six-week engagement at Barnum's American Museum in 1860. After the Civil War, uh, with portions of their property now rendered worthless, they would again agree to public exhibitions with Barnum, going on a European tour sponsored by Barnum in 1868. The twins would die on the same day, January of 1874, at the age of 62, after making a lot more money than they ever would have without the option of paid exhibitions. Chang contracted pneumonia, died rather suddenly in his sleep. Ang woke to find his brother dead, called for his wife and children to say goodbye to him. A doctor was summoned to perform an emergency separation, but Ang refused to be separated from the brother he had always been connected to and died three hours later. Uh, back to Barnum. Could do a whole suck on Chang and Ang. I find them fascinating. As much as Barnum's oddity displays partially discussed 2021 me, I have no doubt that 1860 me would have bought tickets to most of his shows, if not all of them. The Civil War years would be very profitable for Barnum. 1860, another hit attraction comes about. A very sad, very controversial human story at the center of it. Next to Joyce Heth, this is the show that would earn him the most historical disgust. Maybe his cringiest of all of his tours. In 1860, William Henry Johnson, also known as Zip the Pinhead, began performing at Barnum's American Museum. And if I ever laugh when I say pinhead going forward, it's not because I'm mocking this poor man. It's because growing up, That was my dad's favorite insult for my sister and I. He loved to call us pinheads, right? So when I hear that word, I picture me doing something as a kid, you know, stupid, like walking into a screen door and mashing my face into it and just hear my dad yell something like, oh, nice going, pinhead. So to get that out of my system. Uh, William Henry Johnson was born to a very poor African-American family. His parents were William and Mahalia Johnson, former slaves. As he grew, his body developed normally, but his head remained small. We now know this condition as microcephaly, microcephaly, a condition that carries with it higher chances of intellectual disabilities, poor, poor motor function, poor speech, abnormal facial features, seizures, and dwarfism. It seems that William Henry, however, was not mentally deficient. William's tapered head and heavy jaw made him attractive to agents from Van, Van Emberg's Circus in Somerville, New Jersey. He was billed as Eek, a missing link in the process of human evolution, who had reportedly been caught in Africa. He was displayed to crowds from behind the bars of a cage, and was so successful that William's agent brought him to P.T. Barnum. Barnum purchased the right to display William Johnson, gave him a new and even more demeaning look. A furry suit was made to fit him, and his hair was shaped to a tiny point to emphasize his sloped brow. And then he was given the name of not just Zip the Pinhead, but Zip the Pinhead, the what is it? Holy shit, this is terrible. Uh, Zip's early performances were given a backstory. The audience was told that Zip had come from a whole tribe of missing links, also called wild men, and what is it's? What the fuck? Uh, Zip supposedly subsided on raw meat, nuts, and fruit, but was learning to eat more civilized food like bread and cake. Uh, Then Zip's cage was revealed. Inside, Zip would rattle the bars and shriek, and people loved it. Society's understanding of physical deformities, not quite what it is today. In 1860, Zip was visited at the museum by Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales. His photo was taken by famed Civil War photographer Matthew Brady. Uh, In later years, Zip's act became more civilized. He shared the stage with other prodigies, including his friends, 
Jim Tarver, the Texas giant, Jack Earl, tallest man in the world, Cuckoo the Bird Girl, many others. Later on, Zip also traveled extensively with the Ringling Brothers Circus. He would die in 1926 at the age of 69, complications from bronchitis. He refused to seek medical treatment for these complications because he didn't want to miss one of his performances. As cringy as all of this is, by all accounts, Bill loved what he did. Uh, He made good money, was surrounded by other meat sacks with unique looks, people he considered to be his family. He belonged to a tribe of fellow quote-unquote oddities or freaks. Had he not had the sideshow, what would his life have been like? How alone would he been? Would he have been as uh, happy as he was performing under the demeaning name of Zip the Pinhead? Arguably, no. So, you know, uh, how much of a victim was he? Or was he a strange kind of success story or, or both? I, I find this all so morally ambiguous at times. In 1862, another per, uh, new person of interest becomes one of Barnum's beloved exhibitions. His name is George Washington Morrison Nutt, also known by his stage name of Commodore Nutt. Barnum met Nutt in 1861 when the boy went to the American Museum in New York City. In his autobiography, Barnum wrote that Nutt was a most remarkable dwarf who was a sharp, intelligent little fellow with a deal of drollery and wit. He had a splendid head, which was perfectly formed and was very attractive. And in short, for a showman, was a perfect treasure. (laughs) So weird to hear this description. He had a splendid head. I was looking for a performer with a splendid head. I saw his head and I was like, Eureka! On December 12th, 1861, Nutt signs a contract with Barnum. In the following year, he's brought to the museum at the age of 17. When he measured just three feet tall, Nutt would grow to be 43 inches, three feet, seven inches tall. And for his act, he would fight Tom Thumb in bare-knuckled boxing matches that would end when one of them was unconscious. I know, this is terrible today. They would fight uh, before Tom retired a remarkable 317 matches, several thousand rounds. Every fight didn't end until there was somebody, you know, getting knocked out. It ended essentially with a concussion. Tom lost over 200 times, and towards the end of his career, he was so punch drunk, he actually thought he was Commodore Nutt, and that's what made him want to keep fighting. He wanted to destroy the fake but actually real Mr. Nutt, and that's too much. That didn't happen. They never fought, probably only because Barnum couldn't, you know, convince him to. Uh, At first, Barnum billed Nutt as the $30,000 Nutt, claiming he'd paid Nutt to, uh, you know, $30,000 to be in his, his exhibit. Another piece of humbuggery. Uh, Once a real contract with Nutt was signed, Barnum did start a publicity campaign to prepare the public for Nutt's debut. He let reporters think he was trying to hire Mr. Nutt. And when other showmen heard this rumor, they rushed in to offer Nutt's parents huge sums of money to be the first to sign their son. And that publicity created a lot of free press, a lot of excitement. In New York, Nutt was accompanied by his brother, Rodnia Nutt. Rodnia was the coachman for his brother's trips around town, which had become one of Barnum's favorite ways of advertising. Why distribute a poster when you could show New Yorkers the real thing? You know, that enticed them to come to the museum for the show. The carriage looked like a walnut that hinged at the top and New Yorkers were blown away. And that is pretty clever to, you know, drive around town in the carriage. It looks like a big walnut. Uh, salaries would start at, uh, you know, $12 per week with increases every year for the brothers. Uh, the two brothers would each get 30 bucks per week in, in the fifth and last year of their contract. They would also get 10% from the sales of their souvenir books and photographs with at least 240 the first year and 440 the last year. At the end of the fifth year, they would receive a carriage and a pair of ponies from Barnum. Not nearly Tom Thumb buying a few houses money, but a really good living. Uh, Commodore Nutt would have some famous fans. President Abraham Lincoln even asked Barnum and Nutt to come to the White House once in November of 1862. And when the two arrived, Lincoln left a cabinet meeting to go welcome them. Love it. The Civil War meeting will have to wait. I must not keep Commodore Nutt waiting. As Barnum and Nutt were on the way out, President Lincoln shook Nutt's hand. He told the Commodore that he should wade ashore if his fleet was ever in danger. 
And when he said that, Nutt allegedly looked up and down at Lincoln's long legs and said, I guess, Mr. President, you could do that better than I could. Pretty, pretty witty dude. Commodore Nutt would become Tom Thumb's rival for the affections of another performer with dwarfism, Lavinia Warren. Tom would win out and propose to her, and Barnum knew he had another chance to make more money. He sent Tom, Lavinia Nutt, and Lavinia's sister on a grand tour of the world as the Tom Thumb Company. The performing troupe traveled the world, and according to published accounts, Nutt received the patronage of royalty in nearly every kingdom of the old world. He also made more money. He made uh, a lot more than 30 bucks a week doing that. Uh, they returned to America in 1872. Nutt and Barnum argued about future pay. Then Nutt quit to join Harry Deacon's Lilliputian Comic Opera Company to make more money. He would later live in Oregon, California, New York, operating saloons in each state. He'd also get married before dying at the age of 33 of inflammation of the kidneys, Bright's disease. In 1865, another unique person, very unique, would join Barnum's freak show, quote unquote. Isaac W. Sprague, known as the original living skeleton on stage, would begin performing at Barnum's museum. He'd be paid 80 bucks a week. Isaac Sprague was born May 21st, 1841 in East Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Although perfectly healthy for most of his childhood, at the age of 12, he began to lose weight. He began to lose a lot of weight. Almost all his fat, most of his muscle. Modern doctors agree he probably suffered from progressive muscular atrophy. As his emaciation continued, Isaac's energy, of course, lessened. Soon, the poor bastard couldn't keep working at the grocery store where he'd apprenticed. Then in 1865, during a visit to a local carnival when he was 24, a promoter spotted Isaac and offered him a job. Although initially reluctant to exhibit himself for money, Isaac didn't know how else he'd make a living, so he joined the circus, becoming the living skeleton or the original thin man. Following year, P.T. Barnum hired Sprague to work at the American Museum. And by the age of 44, Isaac, five feet, six inches tall, apparently weighed only 43 pounds. And if you can't get your mind around that, you are not alone. I looked at a lot of pictures. Uh, he does look like he weighed 43 pounds. It's hard to accept that they're not doctored. His condition required him to constantly take in nutrients. His health was in such a poor state that he often carried milk in a flask around his neck. He would sip on it from time to time to keep from passing the fuck out. My God. Uh, around noon on July 13th, 1865, Isaac and some other barn and performers almost died. Barnum's beloved American Museum quickly succumbed to the fierce tooth of fire, causing the great pandemonium, uh, the greatest pandemonium that New York City had ever seen. The New York Times wrote, probably no building in New York was better known, inside and out, to our citizens than the ill-looking, ungainly, rambling structure on the corner of Broadway and Ann Streets, known as the American Museum, where for more than 20 years, Mr. Barnum has furnished the public with a wonderful variety of amusements. Wonderful variety of amusements. That really speaks volumes about public sentiment in regard to the sideshows and so-called, you know, freak shows back then. The Times clearly were not put off by all that went on there. Uh, the fire spread rapidly, quickly filling the upper floors with smoke. Firemen burst in from Ann Street, worked quickly to rescue patrons who'd collapsed or were lost in the labyrinths of bizarre objects. A fireman named William McNamara, credited with single-handedly evacuating many patrons of the museum, as well as some of the performers who lived there in various apartments. A lifetime dedicated to collecting had vanished. It literally went up in smoke with this fire. Not to mention, uh, you know, uh, just so many important historical artifacts from like the American Revolution, uh, you know, from founding fathers, uh, whales, kangaroos, alligators, monkeys perished, more animals perished. Somehow a lot of the wax figures survived. Uh, thankfully, the fire was put out before anyone lost their lives. New York City would mourn the loss of the Barnum Collection and their beloved American Museum. Phineas Taylor Barnum supposedly mourned for the animals that died in the fire most of all. Uh, some of the animals in Barnum's menagerie did manage to escape to the streets of New York City, but... Uh, they tended to uh, suffer a terrible fate in other places. When they did, a tiger was shot in the street by a member of the NYPD. Barnum learned of the fire while he was speaking at the Connecticut legislature in Hartford against railroad schemes. 
He was given a note during his speech about the fire, read it, and then somehow kept his shit together and finished his speech. Uh, his collection was valued at $400,000. Less than 1000 of it was saved, and his insurance would only cover $40,000. He lost his ass on this one. Time to retire? He said he wanted to. He had the money to. But he says he cared about what happened to his employees, who numbered over 150 people at the time. He also thought New York needed a museum. He knew that they would let him have a second shot. And let's be honest, you know, he had a huge ego. He wanted to keep feeding it. In September of 1865, Barnum opens up a new theater at 539 uh, through 541 Broadway between Spring and Prince Streets. He has new collectibles, new exhibits, and the new museum is another hit, but it would last for less than three years. Can you guess why? Another fire! March 3rd, 1868, another fucking fire. Burns his second museum to the ground. His museums were among the most popular attractions of all time, but with two fires destroying everything, he has to call it off. Fucking fires! Lost an epic mansion, his two biggest businesses to fire. What a terrible thing. To have something you love so much just burn to the ground. Uh, he now wanted to focus on politics, and he had an idea on the back burner for something else in the circus industry. Between 1866-1869, Barnum serves as a member of the Connecticut House of Representatives from the Fairfield District. He was chairman of the Committee on Agriculture. Uh, as important as he found politics, though, he, he decided they were not for him. The man that displayed, quote-unquote, freaks professionally found politics distasteful. In the spring of 1867, Barnum was nominated for Congress as a Republican, but he lost. The state went for a Democrat loaded ticket. He would lose again in 1869. And then of his time in politics, he would later write, the filth and scandal, the slanders and vindictiveness, the plottings and fawnings, the fidelity, treachery, meanness, and manliness, which by turns exhibited themselves in the exciting scenes preceding the election were novel to me. There's something really funny about a guy with the career he had saying that. Seems a, seems a bit hypocritical. Uh, finally, in 1871, it is time for the circus. Sweet Calliope! <laughs> Not a little heavy thing to, to say here. <laughs> Some humbug the clown. I just, we just heard of the circus was coming back and uh, hit, hit the button. <laughs> uh, surprising, right? That it took him this long to really get into the circus. Uh, he didn't really get into the circus business. I mean, he dabbled, but he didn't really get into it until late in his career. Not until he was 61. But of course, he'd been working in the space, you know, for quite a while with his museums and his tours. In Delavan, Wisconsin, Barnum partners with businessman William Cameron Coop and the two established P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. It was a traveling circus, menagerie, and museum of quote-unquote freaks. By 1872, it was billing itself as the greatest show on earth. Uh, the log line, they're a lot better than the actual name of the circus. Uh, the name would change a lot. It was called P.T. Barnum's Traveling World's Fair, Great Roman, Hippod Great Roman Hippodrome and Greatest Show on Earth. And also, that's one title. P.T. Barnum's, Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth and the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie and the Grand International Allied Shows United. They really went with the uh, more is better approach to their titles. Not big on word economy. What other title didn't make the cut? P.T. Barnum's place where you can see a lot of things in one area that would otherwise be hard to see at the same time. And odds are, unless you buy a ticket to the greatest show on earth, you will likely not see a lot of these attractions ever and thus be less entertained than you otherwise would be circus and hippodrome and carnival and maybe puppet show and or petting zoo. Uh, in 1871, Barnum uh, begins displaying another hit attraction, a curiosity called the Cardiff Giant. Obviously, it was not a real giant. It was the creation of a New York tobacconist, tobacco, oh my God, tobacconist. No one ever fucking says that word out loud. An obvious lunatic named George Hull. Hull, an atheist, decided to create the giant after a heated argument with a fundamentalist minister named Mr. Turk about a passage in Genesis 6-4 that claimed that giants used to roam the earth. Two weeks in a row on Time Suck. We're talking about giants. Would not have guessed that. I'm pretty sure David Hatcher Childress covers the Cardiff Giant in his upcoming A&G show, Maybe It's Giants. 
I mean, sure, um, people say that the Cardiff Giant is an exposed hoax, a humbug, if you will, uh, but what if it's not? What if, you know, maybe it's giants? Riveting fake programming. Uh, the biblical passage whole got uh, worked up about goes like this. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Hull was flabbergasted that the minister actually believed that literal giants once roamed the earth. Then later, after the argument, laying in bed later that night, he thinks, hey, wait a minute. I bet a lot of people believe that giants once roamed the earth. And I bet I could pull off one of the greatest humbugs of all time and make a lot of money off it. I can't believe he did what I'm going to tell you and that it actually worked. <laughs> this story is so ridiculous. He hired some men to carve out a 10-foot-long, four-and-a-half-inch block of gypsum in Fort Dodge, Iowa. He tells the men that the stone is intended for a monument to Abraham Lincoln in New York. He ships the block to Chicago, where he hires a German stonecutter to carve it into the likeness of a man. He swears the stonecutter to secrecy. Various stains and acids are applied to the giant to make it appear old and weathered. The giant's surface is beaten with steel knitting needles to give it the effect of pores. Then Holt transports the giant by rail to the farm of William Newell, his cousin, in November of 1868. He takes, he takes his shit so far. He buries the thing on his cousin's farm. By this point, he'd spent $2,600 on this hoax. Uh, that's over $50,000 today. Roughly a year later, dude had patience. He wanted to let the ground recover and make it not look like a hole had recently been dug. Newell hires two men, Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols, to dig up a well. And when the two men began digging on October 16th, 1869, they find, quote unquote, the petrified remains of a giant. One of the men reportedly exclaims, I declare, some old Indian had been buried here. That's about the most 1869 shit I can think of someone yelling. Newell sets up a tent, charges $25 for people to see this famed giant now, the remains of this famed giant. Two days later, he raises the price to 50 cents uh, per ticket. Word spreads. Soon some experts come in. Archaeological scholars pronounce the giant a fake. Some geologists even notice that there is no good reason to ever try and dig a well in this exact spot where the giant had been found. It was a, it was a humbug. Yale paleontologist Othiniel C. Marsh actually calls it a most decided humbug. But then some Christian fundamentalists and preachers defend its legitimacy. Cha-ching! Suddenly, everyone's talking about giants. Demand for the remains of this giant soar. A lot of people are thinking it's a real giant. Then a syndicate of businessmen offers $30,000 for a three-quarter stake, almost $600,000 in today's money, and Newell sells it. Right? This doesn't count the tickets he'd already sold, reportedly several thousand tickets, and he still owns a 25% interest in this thing. It fucking worked. His stupid plan actually worked. The guys who bought a 75% interest now move it to Syracuse, New York for an exhibition, and then Barnum encounters it and immediately offers them $60,000 for a three-month lease to take it on a tour. But the group of owners turn him down. So Barnum hires a man to cover the model in wax. Then he creates a plaster replica and makes his own fucking fake giant. <laughs> then the king of humbuggery, he puts his giant on display in New York City, claiming that this is the real giant and that the Cardiff giant is the fake. Feels a wee bit illegal. Uh, definitely a dick move. Barnum was such an asshole when he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, it would be one of the Cardiff Giants owners, David Hannum, who would actually say there's a sucker born every minute in reference to the spectators who would pay to see Barnum's giant. That quote, of course, would get misattributed to P.T. Barnum himself. Hannum would sue Barnum, but the judge said that the Cardiff Giant would have to be proved to be real for Hannum to have any chance in court to win. On December 10th, Hole, the original creator, then confesses to the hoax. He'd already made his money. On February 2nd, 1872, both giants are revealed to be fakes in court. Luckily for Barnum, the judge rules that Barnum couldn't be sued for calling the Cardiff giant a fake since it was a fake. What a weird little loophole here. Weird slice of reality Barnum lived in. Uh, November 19th, 1873 now. Bad news. Charity Hallett. Cherry Hallett. 
Barnum's longtime wife and best friend. She dies. She was 65. He was 63. They'd been together 44 years. They had four kids. Caroline Cornelia, Helen Maria, Francis Arena, Pauline Taylor. And what a crazy thing to lose your partner of so many years. They've been through so much together. So many rises and falls, and now it's all over. In 1874, a few months after his wife's death, Barnum marries Nancy Fish, daughter of his friend, Albert Fish. Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. A circus ain't a circus without some peanut butter. I raised that back head right. No, Barnum marries the daughter of his old friend, uh, John Fish. Nancy was 23 or 24, 40 years her husband's junior. <laughs> Fish had accompanied Barnum during his European tours. I was in constant communication with him through writing. There was rumors that the relationship started long before his wife's death. Scandal. Uh, she was just slightly younger than her husband. Wow. A few months over 40 years younger. That will always seem so weird to me. Until I'm 60, and then naturally leave my wife, Lindsay, for a sexy 20-year-old. Hey, hello, Safina. Woo! Uh, JK, come on. Ah, so much JK. There's no need to messenger. We're all friends. Uh, I'm guessing that Barnum may have tried to drown his sorrows in Nancy Fish's pussy here. Guessing. Not the only one who thought that. Uh, the next year in 1875, Barnum takes a break from fucking his young wife constantly and is back in politics. He's elected mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Serves from 1875 to 1876. He would spearhead numerous city improvement initiatives, including Seaside Park. Still there. Uh, looks nice. You know, something good he did. 1881, Barnum finds another so-called freak to promote. Her name, this she blows me away. I, I didn't know this was possible. Myrtle Corbin. She was just 13 in 1861. Uh, she joined the sideshow circuit under the moniker The Four-Legged Girl from Texas. After showing her to curious neighbors for a dime each, her dad thought she had the potential to work in the big leagues. Like a small-time Barnum, he had promotional pamphlets made and started putting ads in the newspapers. And Jesus, her dad sounds so creepy. Charging his neighbors a dime to come gawk at his disfigured, his disfigured daughter's legs. Just, ah, just, hey, want to see my daughter? Want to see my daughter's legs? Give me a dime and I'll show you my daughter's legs. These poor people. Uh, she really did have four legs. Mind-blowing to me. She was born with two normal-sized legs on either side of a pair of smaller yet still functional legs. Her smaller legs were just too weak to walk on, but they, they did work. Her body's axis split as it developed in the womb, and as a result, she was born with two pelvises side by side, also had two vaginas, and even crazier, two functional uteruses. She could have theoretically gotten pregnant twice to two different dudes at the same time in two separate sexual acts. She had two independent reproductive systems. Back then, doctors had no idea what the fuck was going on with her. One doctor, Brooks H. Wells, described her as female belonging to the monocephalic class of monsters by fusion. Okay. Doctor straight up said she was literally a monster. Uh, doctor, what's going on with my daughter? Well, I, I know what's wrong. Medically speaking, she is a monster. Uh, she was supposedly a happy, lively girl, a disposition that would help attract huge crowds to her shows. Uh, working for Barnum, she'd make 450 bucks a week. Her cut, about 10 grand a week today. She made enough money to retire young, get married, have four perfectly healthy children. Uh, a fifth would have to be aborted to save her life in one un unfortunate situation uh, before she would die in 1929 at the age of 59. According to rumor, three of her kids were born from one uterus and two from the other. I know this is fucking crazy, but uh, I have to get some other thoughts out of my head. How wild was her and her husband's sex life? I, ho I hope it was. I hope they both really enjoyed it. I mean, it sounds like she could have had two separate orgasms at the same time, right? Like he could be having sex with one pussy while using his magic fingers on her bonus pussy. Gosh dang. Oh my heck, that is interesting. Am I flipping pervert for having these thoughts? Hey, Lucifina. I love that she had kids. She was happy. She got rich. You know, uh, good for her. 
good for her. She, uh, she, she overcame a lot to have the life she had. I, I don't think I would have been able to get rich if I had two functional dicks. I, uh, maybe through porn, I guess. But in my teens, if I would have had two working dicks in my arsenal, I might have literally jerked myself off to death. I, I would have died of like maspiratory induced dehydration or something. I, w- I would have died of a stroke in- induced stroke. You get it. So tough uh, to resist, right? When you, when you got one trouser gun unloaded and then the other one's throbbing and aching to be fired. I, I literally didn't know that her physical situation was, was possible. Uh, in 1881, Barnum sought to join a rival instead of trying to destroy them. Uh, must have been getting soft in his later years. John A. Bailey's circus was outperforming his and Barnum sought to merge their two circus empires together. The two, two groups agreed to combine their shows on March 28, 1881, became Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth. Then in 1884, another rival circus came onto the scene, Wisconsin's Ringling Brothers. The Ringling Brothers were five siblings who transformed a small touring company of performers into one of America's largest circuses in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Ringling Brothers Circus ultimately swept across the circus scene, gobbling up smaller circuses, including later on Barnum and Bailey. Also in 1884, another unique person begins performing with P.T. Barnum. His name was Fedor Jeftichu, a.k.a. Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy. Born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1868, Fedor, like Madame Clofulia, suffered from hypertrichosis. I think I'm saying it right. Excessive hair growth. Fedor toured with his father, Adrian, who suffered from the same condition, performed in French circuses. When Adrian died, Fedor struck out on his own, eventually signing a contract with Barnum, who brought him to the U.S. in 1884 when Fedor was 16. Barnum created a story that involved a hunter who tracked Fedor and his father to their cave and captured them, bringing the savages back to society. Barnum stressed Fedor's resemblance to a dog, explaining that uh, when he was upset, Fedor would bark and growl. In the, sh- in the show, Fedor demonstrated just that to audiences. Fedor was actually quite intellectually accomplished. Uh, he spoke Russian, German, and English, toured Europe and the U.S. extensively before he died in the former Ottoman Empire from pneumonia in 1904. 1885, Barnum debuted his biggest attraction ever at Barnum and Bailey Circus, Jumbo the Elephant, who Barnum had bought in London. People were blown away by the giant creature. In the 31-week season, the circus earned $1.75 million, largely due to its star attraction. On May 17, 1884, Jumbo was one of Barnum's 21 elephants that crossed the Brooklyn Bridge to prove that it was safe after 12 people died during a stampede caused by a mass panic over collapse fears a year earlier. Sadly, on September 5, 1885, Jumbo was killed by a fucking train. As the traveling circus was loading the menagerie onto trains in St. Thomas, Ontario, poor Jumbo wandered through a portion of the fence that had been removed and was hit by an unscheduled express Freight train. Uh, Jumbo was crushed. Poor big bastard. Uh, like so many events, Barnum would try to spin this. Barnum afterwards would tell a story that Jumbo died saving a young circus elephant from being hit by the locomotive. But that was not true. Another humbug. Jumbo's skeleton was donated to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. The elephant's heart was sold, sold to Cornell University. In 1889, Barnum donated a taxidermy Jumbo to Tufts University, where it was displayed until destroyed by a fire in, 17, or in, in 1975. Again with the fire. Uh, 1889 saw the debut of yet another interesting Barnum performer, Prince Randian, also nicknamed Pillow Man, the Snake Man, the Human Torso, and the Human Caterpillar. Prince Randian, whose birth name is unknown, was brought to the States by P.T. Barnum in 1889, quickly became incredibly famous. He had Tetra Amelia Syndrome, an incredibly rare genetic disorder that means uh, people are born without any limbs but otherwise healthy and normal. Uh, he performed in sideshows and circuses for 45 years. Prince Randy was incredibly intelligent, could speak Hindi, English, German, and French. Uh, Also very self-sufficient. He could shave, paint, and write. His ability to roll and smoke a cigarette after lighting it with a match got him featured in the infamous 1932 film, uh, Freaks. 
For his act, he wore a woolen onesie, which exaggerated his shape and made him look like a potato. Away from the sideshow circuit, he lived a full life, found love with his wife, Princess Sarah. They would have four kids together. And now I'm thinking about their sex life. Of course I am. What's wrong with me? Uh, he was clearly very good with his mouth. I wonder what magic he bestowed on Princess Sarah. And when she was on top, I'm not sure if he could be on top or not. She could really pivot him around to get just the right angle since he didn't have, you know, arms and legs getting in the way of the, the perfect position. He was like a perfectly shaped living sex toy. I, I don't ask for these thoughts, by the way. They just, they just pop in my head. He died at age 63 shortly after performance at Sam Wagner's 14th Street Museum World Circus Sideshow in New York. Two years later, April 7th, 1891, Phineas Taylor Barnum prepares for his final moments. Kind of. He never stopped working. He never really retired, never took it easy. Two years earlier, he'd moved into his fourth and final mansion, Marina. He had a stroke the year before in 1890, was confined to his new home. Just before his death, he gave permission to the Evening Sun to print his obituary so that he might read it first, working on his press until the very end. On April 7th, 1891, Barnum asked about his circus box office receipts for the day, concerned about how his uh, shows were selling right up until the end. And then a few hours later, he died. He was buried in Mountain Grove Cemetery, Bridgeport, Connecticut, a cemetery he had designed himself back in 1849. Uh, I didn't mention that earlier. There's, there's, there's so much info to fit in. Two years later, a statue in his honor was placed in 1893 at Seaside Park by the water in Bridgeport. By the time he died, most critics had forgiven him and praised him for good works and as being an icon of American spirit and ingenuity. So what happened to his circus? Years later, Barnum Circus was sold to Ringling Brothers on July 8th, 1907 for $400,000, over 11 million today. The two circuses merged financially but still functioned separately until on March 29th, 1919, Barnum and Bailey Circus and Ringling Brothers combined into one big fucking circus. So much calliope. By that time, Charles Edward Ringling and John Nicholas Ringling were the only remaining Ringling Brothers of the five who founded the circus. They decided it was too difficult to run the two circuses independently. So on March 29th, 1919, the combined shows debuted at Madison Square Garden in New York City, where everybody got to hear sweet music like this. Uh, the circus was a success throughout the roaring 20s. Enough glipeats. It's going to give me nightmares. Uh, fast forwarding to close to the present now, on January 15th, 2017, Feld Entertainment announced that it would close the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. So, you know, pretty sad. I, I was taken to it as a kid, and I loved it. It's a bummer that other kids won't get to see it. They had a, they had a long run. Uh, today, Barnum's legacy is all over the place in his advertising techniques, his famous curiosities in the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut that houses more than 60,000 Barnum artifacts, the ones that didn't burn, including a bunch of those cool-ass advertising posters and, and banners. I hope to go there someday. Uh, certainly a man who did a lot in his lifetime. Ne never let setbacks get him down. Whether you agree with his techniques or not, and with a lot of the stuff he did, he certainly did a lot and he changed the world of showbiz. And now let's hop on out of this long-ass time-suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. P.T. Barnum. Possibly one of the most controversial meat sacks we've covered. You know, it's usually easier to be like, good guy or bad guy. Uh, when I first read about him, I hated him. Then I read about him again, and I thought, well, he did improve a lot of people's lives. He just had a lot of great advice. He worked really hard. He entertained a lot of people, so maybe I kind of love him. Then I went over all this a third time and I leaned back towards hating him. He really tried to ruthlessly fuck over, you know, a lot of his competitors. Then I just went over it a fourth time. I'm like, well, there's a, there's a lot to like. Ah, a lot to despise as well. All the humbugging, so much manipulation, tricking people in order to take their money, but also entertaining them. Uh, some people want to be tricked, probably. They definitely wanted to be entertained and Barnum did provide him with entertainment. What about his exhibitions? You know, he made a living off of demonstrating people for their physical oddities. People like Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb, you know, 
w- uh, William Henry Johnson, a.k.a. Zip the Pinhead? Was this dehumanizing? Putting these people on display to be gawked at? Yeah, it was. But did he provide many people with incomes they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise? Provide them with an opportunity to feed their families, travel, have self-worth as being you know international celebrities and performers? Yeah, he did. Whatever you happen to think of him, Barnum was an icon of the 19th century in America and of American entrepreneurial ethic in general. He was a man who started off with a dog shit piece of land in the swamp. And when he learned that that wasn't the thing that would make him the richest man alive, he actually did set out to become the richest man alive. Didn't become the richest man alive, but uh, he did pretty well. He was a man who did whatever he had to do to drum up success for his ventures, relying on whatever he could write to change an audience's feelings and arouse their curiosity. Long before he was a showman, he was a candy seller, a rum seller, a newspaper printer, a clerk, a lounge operator, basically anything he could do to provide for his family and make himself wealthy. He fought for the so-called American dream a lot harder than most. Barnum was a museum proprietor, business leader, politician, urban developer, community benefactor, slave owner, emancipationist, lecturer, author, con man, and more. And it was his American Museum, a museum he came to own through a careful bit of humbuggery that really set him on the path to showmanship. From 1842 until 1865, the American Museum grew into an enormous enterprise, promoted as having 850,000 exhibits at one time. All these curiosities throughout its saloons or salons. It was a marvel, a vast collection of wax figures, taxidermy, an aquarium, a public theater, historical collections, living curiosities. It burned down twice. So did his favorite house, the favorite palace in the whole city of Bridgeport. In his final years, it would be Barnum's Circus, later renamed Barnum and Bailey Circus, that would cement his reputation as a master showman. He traveled the U.S. with his circus on rail lines, bringing entertainment to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. He traveled through Europe and other places. All in all, he brought live entertainment to millions around the world, and he's still entertaining us now. He left us with the crazy story of his crazy life. Time now to look back on it a few more times with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. From an early age, Barnum was focused on making money, avoiding hard labor, and maximizing headwork on his or his intellectual projects. He would own a number of businesses over the years, from grocery stores and lottery outlets to newspapers and his beloved museums, before eventually forming the circus that would carry his name for decades after his death. Number two, Barnum never rested on his success. Even when he had a surefire hit on his hands in the form of a human curiosity, he kept looking for others. Number three, Barnum didn't even start his famous circus until he was in his early 60s, one of the world's biggest retirement projects. Number four, fire haunted Barnum. His American Museum was one of at least three important structures that Barnum built that would be lost to fire, which also included his one-of-a-kind palace in Connecticut, Iranistan. And number five, new info. In 2017, a musical film based on the life of P.T. Barnum, his American Museum, and the lives of its star attractions was released starring Hugh Jackman and as Barnum and Michelle Williams as his wife, Charity, the greatest showman. It would gross $435 million at the box office against an $84 million budget. Very successful movie. Long after his death, dude still knows how to sell some fucking tickets. Time suck. Top five takeaways. P.T. Barnum has been sucked. That was a big one, I know. I'm trying to make him a little smaller, actually. <laughs> that was too much uh, information to digest, I think. Just I've said that in the past, and then it doesn't happen, but I I think they might not be quite as long going forward. Uh, but, but that was uh, interesting. A lot of interesting stuff. I hope I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. The script keeper, Zach Flannery. Sophie, the fact sorcerer's Evans. Both working a lot on the notes uh, for this episode in addition to myself. 
Thanks to BitElixir for app and web design, Logan, Art, Warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com, working on the socials with Liz Hernandez. Thanks to all of those in the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group or in one of the many subgroups. We will not let Tiago, the real boy, shut us down. Thank you to Liz Hernandez for all seen eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. And thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running wild on Discord. Next week on Time Suck, we get dark, horrifying. We, get, uh, we go insane tentacle monsters with the most famous creation of a famous horror writer. We're going to be talking about Cthulhu and H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, the mastermind of cosmic horror brought madness and existential dread to new heights. Writing in the 1920s and 30s, he looked at the mundane world of New England and figured out ways to incorporate small details about day-to-day life with the hint that there might be something out there that's more powerful than we could ever know. Something out there that our brains can't understand, that we'd go insane at, or that we'd go insane if we looked at. He would say about his work, I could not write about ordinary people because I am not the least interested in them. And so he wrote about the bizarre, cannibalism, Reanimation, self-immolation, murder, madness-inducing meteors, human-fish hybrids, aliens, even a horde of tame-trained hybrid winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. I like it. This guy sounds like he likes what I like. He wrote about monsters. One monster in particular would leave a lasting mark Cthulhu, a gigantic entity worshipped by cultists, and shaped like an octopus, a dragon, and many other things in a terrified, twisted mass. Cthulhu would first appear in Lovecraft's 1928 short story, The Call of Cthulhu. And it was Cthulhu that really launched the genre of Lovecraftian horror and the expansive Cthulhu mythos that incorporated monsters and creatures of all kinds, as well as mythic cities, alien wars, and more. After he died, pretty much still unknown outside of horror writing circles, uh, his close friends and fans kept incorporating new work into the Cthulhu uh, mythos, expanding it into a truly enormous fictional universe. He was a pioneer of world building, and we love world building here. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, Star Wars. So many of us love a complex mythology, a new universe to get lost in. I sure do. Even though he died relatively unknown in Providence, Rhode Island, 1937, at the age of 46, Lovecraft's impact on the world of horror uh, of horror fiction, hard to under, understate. He was so influential. His mythologies seep into the works of Ridley Scott, Stephen King, Guillermo del Toro, Josh Whedon, Stephen King, countless others. He's influenced movies and video games, countless other forms of media. And we're sucking them next week. So tune in to learn more about Cthulhu, Lovecraft, and hopefully not go insane with all that knowledge. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. So uh, last week, during the Trail of Tears Suck, despite putting in hours of phonetic spellings into my notes and listening to easily over 100 videos to try and get various words I've never heard before correct, I still fucked it. Heather Miranda, one of undoubtedly tens of thousands of listeners with better speaking skills than I have, wrote a really funny subject line that said, how in the actual fuck? Intrigued. She follows with, dude, how do you say the same word 874 times, but only pronounce it correct four times? (laughs) Osceola, say it with me. Osceola. Good God, man. Also, I'm a Florida native, and I didn't know that Ocala actually had some historical importance. I grew up in that shithole. <laughs> so that was a pleasant shock. I thought it was just a place old people went to swing and drive 10 miles under the speed limit. Anyway, love the show. All of them love you guys. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. This isn't a long email, so suck it. <laughs> Heather Miranda. Uh, I wish I knew, Heather Miranda, what's, uh, what in the actual fuck. I wish I knew. I need to donate my brain to science someday when I die so they can figure out uh, what parts are broken. Uh, I did not know that Ocala was a senior swinger town. Interesting. Thanks for still enjoying the shows, despite me having to speak to make them work. One more pronunciation message from another funny sucker with another named 
uh, name, excuse me, that is easy to say. Thank God, Ryan Black. <laughs> Ryan writes, I love your goddamn show. Started listening in 2017 and I'm currently listening to the Trail of Tears Suck. I swear to Christ, if you pronounce Talapusa and the Kusa, the Talapusa and Kusa rivers again and proceed to mock my ancestors and homeland based on your own mispronunciations, you will pay. Those cute little shits you call dogs will become my new male fetching slippers. Kidding, but in all seriousness, that's not the correct, correct pronunciation, but I guess we can't expect much more from you. Kidding again. <laughs> thank you for the content. I'll come to see you, uh, see your spaces or to ask next time you come to Atlanta, Ryan Black. Uh, thank you, Ryan. I bet my dogs would actually make some comfy ass slippers. Like seriously, they're so soft. It'd be so sad to see them turned into slippers. <laughs> but if they were my slippers, my sadness would probably be somewhat balanced out by how comfy my feet would be. You give me a lot of uh, new things to think about. Uh, very cool trailer tears connection message now coming in from longtime cool ass sucker Errol Eden. Errol writes, hello, cult leader. Stay curious. I'm writing this to you after a tear field suck that hit me on a personal level. I was aware of the subject was one of the consistent voters to get this into the suck. Man, it was worth the wait. I loved every second of your word-destroying mushmouth fuckery when it came to every detail you and the Bad Magic crew put together in a way only you can. Still fuck you for making me cry at work, but thank you all. Now the personal side. I heard stories growing up of who I believed was an Italian mother. Turns out my entire existence was a lie, a lie that got shattered in the recent past when my last living uncle on his deathbed told the story of his grandmother, my great-grandmother, being 100% Cherokee. She was born in the 1830s, was an amazing and strong woman. She lost over 60% of her family on the walk and was born into a sad time. Damn. Dan, I wept out loud. Dan, I wept out loud, feeling the pain in the words of a child told by a man the way you read it was perfect and respectful. I cannot imagine the true terror, anger, and horror they all saw on that hellish walk. Here is a story of my great-grandmother, Marta Cathiai of my great-grandfather, Felipe Stumpo. He fled from Italy, came to work on the Trans-American Railroad, fell in love with and married a Cherokee girl, Marta. For this, the Italians wanted to kill him for marrying a, quote, savage, and Marta's tribe wanted to kill her for marrying a European man. So now they fled the U.S. back to Italy, where Marta was taught to speak Italian and given secret family recipes, and most importantly, a black dress, J.K. Gosh dang. And there you, have the, uh, there you have it, the Cherokee was an instant Italian. After her transformation, they came back to the U.S., had 11 children. My grandfather, Gaspar, was number 11. He set up a farm in New York where he built the house to completion in 1895. This was the house where my mother, eight of nine, was born in in 1929 and where I grew up after being born in, eight, in 1968. I lived there until I was 20, left for the service. So many lies around the marriage of my great-grandparents because even in the 1960s, it was not politically correct to be from the bloodline of a Cherokee. I'm enclosing a photo of my great-grandparents. I'm not sure of the year. It was in the 18-somethings. Please accept my deepest love for you all covering the topic. It was worth the wait. I have to update my favorite suck to this one. Three and a half out of five stars. Now it's time to get on my swamp pony and get out of here with heartfelt love. Not sorry for the longest fuck email. And there is a hot Italian home-cooked meal waiting for you next time you do a show in Charlotte, North Carolina. Errol Eaton. Thank you, Errol. I love the picture you enclosed. Yeah, your grandma uh, does not look Italian. She looks uh, so Cherokee and your grandpa looks so Italian. Like the poster child for each race. They are adorable together. Beautiful woman, handsome man. Love that they found each other and created such a massive family. I will never understand how people used to, to pull that shit off, right? Like the big families, just so, so many kids. Uh, glad you enjoyed the episode. Challenging topic. So many different people to try and touch on in one episode. Uh, I'm glad uh, you, you know, that we were able to find that one especially powerful personal story to tell in that episode. Uh, another Trail of Tears update from Curious Sucker Brian Williams. Brian shares an interesting childhood memory. He writes, 
I live in Northwest Oklahoma, and in sixth grade, we celebrated Statehood Day by reenacting the land run. In the beginning of the day, the students would make our covered wagons out of hula hoops, radio flyer wagons, and canvas. The teachers at our school would divide up the baseball field into sections, and in the afternoon, we would take our wagons and flags and run out onto the field and stake our claim. Some students got to head in early, called the Sooners, and the rest would have to try to prove who cheated and how. It was a lot of fun at the time, but looking back on it now, kind of messed up to celebrate that way, especially since we had two Native American children in our class. Not sure how to wrap this up, so fuck it. Absolutely love everything Bad Magic uh, does, and I'm now fully caught up on all the shows, including Incredible Feats, uh, your dummy-sucking creeper, Brian. Holy shit. Uh, thanks for listening to everything, Brian. And yeah, that is kind of fucked up. I mean, what the hell? A little, little tone deaf for those teachers. Maybe uh, don't reenact shit like that with kids. Really rubbing some salt on the wound unnecessarily there. Uh, we've come a long way. Our culture culture is not perfect. It never will be. But man, you hear all these stories, you know, like a lot of the stories from today suck. And uh, we've come a long way as far as being being kind to uh, lots of different types of people. And now let's end, let's end up, let's close out on some weirdness. Happy weirdo and fun-loving sucker, Holly Irvin, shares her joy writing, Hey, Suckmaster. I'm not great at fun names, but I wanted to thank you for being a part of my engagement this past weekend. Congrats. My boyfriend, Joel, well, now fiance, and I love the podcast. He introduced me to it through the Richard Chase episode a little less than a year ago, which I hated at first. So nasty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but after some hesitation, dove into other episodes, and now I listen almost daily while I work to catch up as I am a taxidermist and I clean rental cabins. We especially love the true crime and crazy episodes. And this past Saturday, we took a trip to a special knife store in the next state over and decided to listen to the Carl Denke episode on the ride there. While we were in the parking lot of the old store, he decided to pull out a ring right after he got me a new knife and proposed to me right then and there. We forgot to take pictures, didn't tell anyone at first, and decided to spend our first engaged moments together listening to the Yahim Kroll episode to stay on the cannibal theme <laughs> and got ice cream to celebrate. Just thought you'd want to hear our interesting engagement day. Wanted to thank you so much for being a part of it. I'm sorry this was so long, but Joel loves the Albert Fish episode and will even mimic your voice of him in any situation and has even done so at my church on, East, on Easter. Instead of a shout out, if you end up reading this, would you please say showbiz for him? I promise I would make his day. Thanks again. We love all that you do, Holly. Well, Joel, I said it already, but again, showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Uh, I love this story. I love that you went from being disgusted by the Richard Chase episode to listening to Yahim Kroll to keep your cannibalism theme going uh, right after getting engaged. Holy fuck, we have warped you, Holly. Uh, congratulations again on the engagement. Keep being weird. Keep not taking life too seriously. And I don't know, fuck each other's brains out. I think that's what you're supposed to do when you're engaged. And hail Nimrod. Oh, and probably hail Lucifina. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meet Sex. Uh, maybe don't ask anyone with four legs and a bonus pussy to tour the world as a human oddity this week. Unless you want to. Uh, and then, you know, who the fuck are you to judge? And keep on sucking. And now, welcome to the stage, Joey Extra Arm Guy. Wow, very real. Straight from the planet. Extra Armicus. Give me a dime. Give him the dime. Yay. Yay. Showbiz. <laughs> Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. 
It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.